And we are on air for Fan for Racing Radio, and it's good to be back, I must say. Uh, we are going to have a big show here tonight because uh, it was the season openers this weekend out at Daytona International Speedway. Joining me shortly will be our co-host, Jay Huseman. Now, we're going to start off talking about some short track news. After that, we'll get into the season opener for the Arca Menard Series out at Daytona. And uh, starting at the top of the hour, we'll start uh, reviewing the uh, Truck Series, the NASCAR Xfinity Series, and the Cup Series races, all season openers at Daytona International Speedway this weekend. Then at the top of the next hour, 10 o'clock p.m. Eastern, we are going to uh, get into our NASCAR Hot Topic Sound Off segment, and uh, our Fan for Racing crew will be on hand uh, to help us hash it all out. So joining me is Jay Huseman. Welcome to the show, Jay. Well, thank you. Excuse me. Thank you, Sharon. And I know we did a preview show last week that I wasn't able to be a part of, but this is my first show. I want to thank you for having me back for the year for 2024. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, it's been a lot of fun working with you. So uh, I'm looking forward to the 2024 season. We've got a lot of racing ahead of us. We're just starting with the first weekend, and uh, there's 36 more races in the Cup Series and a lot of other races going on uh, all around that. So let's go ahead and start with some of the short track races uh, and some of the results that we had from this past weekend uh, with our World of Outlaws late model racing in dirt. Well, Nick Hoffman used a last lap pass to score the win there at the Dirt Car Nationals, and that's covered by Matt Skipper on the World of Outlaws.com. Might have been one of the best uh, races in a long time anyway. I know a lot of people were talking about it. I want to say he passed uh, Superman Jonathan Davenport, but I can't quite remember that for sure. One other side note I wanted to throw on here, though, as Hoffman moved up from Modifieds to late models this year, or last year, Kenny Wallace picked up a victory driving his Modified for him. So that was his first as a car owner with somebody else driving. (laughs) That's pretty cool. All right. Also, Devin Moran. Uh, held off an intense challenge from behind to score a win uh, the following night at Volusia Speedway. Uh, Matt Skipper covered that story as well over on World of Outlaws. And I'll tell you, this is a big, big week uh, down in Florida because not only did we have all the Daytona races uh, that uh, took place with NASCAR and ARCA, there was a lot of short track racing and dirt racing going on uh, around the state that this weekend as well. There certainly is. It's, it's speed weeks for a reason, and that is not just about Daytona or NASCAR anymore, as you mentioned. And talking about that, for the Dirt Cart Nationals um, Championship, you get a big gator, and that went to the way of Bobby Pierce, who ended up beating Moran by 26 points for that week-long championship, which covers, I think, four, maybe even five different tracks. Again, you can check out Matt Skipper's uh, recap on that at worldoutlaws.com. And another worldoutlaws.com note here, uh, this story by Alex Neaton. Landon Crawley uh, was impressive during his first World of Outlaw start. So not only the veterans were out there, but there were a few rookies as well. 
and uh, it's good to see them having a, a good day on the track. Most certainly, and as you mentioned it, there were several drivers. I know Stuart Friesen's one of them that was jumping back and forth, spending some time uh, in between his truck series, NASCAR truck series duties, running over and running some modifieds as well. There were several other drivers that did some double duty. And the other one I wanted to throw out there, Ken Schrader also picked up a victory during the week there down there. So good week to be Kenny in Florida. Yes, indeed. All right, let's move over to some short track action. Uh, the ASA Stars National Tour. I'm really looking forward to this again this season. I had fun watching it last year. Uh, Bubba Pollard, uh, he kept his strong start to the 2024 season uh, with a very dominant win out at New Smyrna Speedway. Matt Weaver covered that over on Short Track Scene. And, uh, again, I just think uh, this series uh, has a lot going for it, and I, I can't wait to watch it again this year. Well, Matt Weaver covering so much there for short track scene as well as others. Also has one up on Gio Ruggiero, uh, scoring his second win of the week. So picked up two two victories throughout the week there for Gio Ruggiero. Yeah, and that's the World Series of Asphalt Racing that was taking place uh, out there. And that is at Five... Is that at Five Flags? Yeah, I think that's at Five Flags Speedway. So... Uh, you just you just are not lacking for racing uh, when it comes to speed weeks here. Brett Cruz also won the Orange Blossom 100 on Thursday. He narrowly defeated Ruggiero in that race for the Super Late Model title. And Matt Weaver, again, writes about that over at Short Track Scene. And then we move on to the modifieds is the tour type modifieds uh, field. That's our resurgent Matt Hirschman uh, when when win Wednesday nights. Uh, John Blue at the third Memorial seventy six. Again, Matt Waver covering that as well as so much. Uh, you're going to hear his name more than anything else. Yeah, Matt Weaver really knows what's going on in the short track world. Hirschman also won on Thursday night, which was kind of cool, too. Uh, And, of course, Matt Weaver was there to uh, give us all the details of what happened. So uh, check that out over at Short Track Scene for sure. But I'm going to move over here. There's something else I want to make sure we tell fans about. We've followed this for many years now, Uh, the 2024 Driver Development Program has named their semi-finalists, and I want to make sure we cover that because uh, there's some interesting names on here. Uh, some we've already mentioned, uh, 15 KDDP semi-finalists uh, for the 2024 season. They're listed in alphabetical order. Uh, it includes uh, Braden Burge uh, from Elkhorn, Wisconsin, uh, also, Chase Berta from Lapeer, Michigan. TJ DeClaire uh, from Land Lakes, Florida. We mentioned Ty Fredrickson on the previous show from Webster, Minnesota. There's Derek uh, Lukaki from Dartmouth, Massachusetts. Evan Gates from Okanagan, Wisconsin. Jevin Gerlaski. Borowski, I should say, from Wausau, Wisconsin. Cassidy Hines from Arbeda, Colorado. 
Taylor Hoare from uh, South Hero, Vermont, Max Taylor from Caledonia, Illinois, Cody King from Clear Lake, Iowa, Clear Lake, Iowa, uh, Kendrick Crayer from Wisconsin Dells, Wisconsin, Grant Thompson from Mobile, Alabama, down in uh, Jay's neck of the woods, LaVon Vanderdeest from Merrill, Wisconsin, and Brandon Varney from Auburn, Maine. Uh, wow. That's really cool, and I can't wait to see. I think they end up with five or maybe just a couple when it's all said and done. But these are the semifinalists. Well, and i got to tell you what. I mean, we know the history of Wisconsin drivers and several of them coming from there. But I did get to see Grant Thompson. He came down to Jackson Motor Speedway for his first time on dirt. And I saw the impressive uh, talent he had. Started out kind of rough, obviously, for his first time on dirt, but making his way through the weekend and improving each time he was on the track. I know he spent a lot, spent a lot of time there at Mobile Raceway in Mobile, so I'm going to have to keep an eye on him, but I, I can vouch for his talent because I saw what he did on dirt for the first time ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's also the 20, he's only 18 years old, first of all. He's the 2020 Pro Truck Snowball Derby champion. Uh, he's planning to run select prolate model races at New Smyrna Speedway, Montgomery, Five Flags, and Mobile. So that, that speaks to what you were just talking about. Montgomery's on that list uh, and Mobile. He also plans to run a select uh, prolate model cars tour in the Cars Tour West races. So he does have a uh, Twitter account as well as an Instagram account. You can follow him if you're looking to follow uh, an up-and-coming driver, Grant Thompson, 54, on Twitter. And he is just Grant Thompson Racing over on Instagram. So really cool to see him uh, getting this opportunity in a Wisconsin-filled, you know, a Midwest-filled field here. Yeah, he certainly was outnumbered there as you were running down the locations. And I'm going to have to look up uh, where Webster, Minnesota is. That that town I had not heard of either, so I'm going to have to look that up. Okay, I know you've got Minnesota ties as well. Uh, Who was our driver from there? Oh, that was Ty Fredrickson. Uh, We we kind of talked about him a little bit as one of the drivers to watch. He's just 14 years old. He's the son of Dan Fredrickson. He scored his first podium in his first ASA Midwest Tour start at Oktoberfest in 2023 and starting his season at Speedweeks in New Smyrna. He will also be running the entire ASA Midwest Tour schedule in 24, and he's going to be uh, going for that Rookie of the Year title. You can follow Ty at TyFredrickson36 on Twitter and that's the same handle he has over on Instagram. So another driver to keep your eye on, as we mentioned uh, last Thursday as well. Well, that's awesome, and that's following in the footsteps of last year. We saw William Solwich, a Minnesota driver, kind of break out, make his name known as he's advancing up the ranks. So uh, it's been a while since we've had a a top Minnesota driver. I know that was uh, William Solich. One of his things was to be the first Minnesota driver to win a NASCAR championship. (laughs) Yep. Well, we do have people from all over the United States here, Uh, Michigan, Maine, Florida, 
Minnesota, Massachusetts, Washington, as far away as Washington, Colorado, uh, Vermont, uh, Caledonia, Illinois, Iowa, Wisconsin, Dells, Wisconsin, of course, Merrill, Wisconsin, uh, Auburn, Maine. We already mentioned Mobile, Alabama. So this is going to be a tough field without a doubt, and I can't wait to see how it all plays out. Certainly, and that's part of the great part of one of these programs is is the range that it has, like you said, from across the country. And we know that uh, back in the day, it was one or two select drivers that got picked out of the crowd. Now, and I'm trying to think, I'm drawing a blank on who discovered Greg Biffle out in Washington. I want to say Benny Parsons, if I'm not mistaken. Is that not who uh, oh, found wow. Greg Biffle out there? Oh, it's possible. Yeah, yeah. He was and, definitely and uh, West Coast. To, uh, well, also out in the West Coast out there in the upper Northwest was um, Casey Kane. Yep, there's another one that came from Umaclaw, Washington, I believe, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. I don't remember who, who kind of found him, but it always takes those first ones. And in this day and age with the coverage we get on flow racing, dirt on dirt, USA, uh, not USA, what's uh What's the other website we use, Sharon? I'm sorry. Racing America. Flow Racing, Racing America, and Short Track Scene. There we go. All of this getting national coverage now that these drivers are getting more visibility and well-known. But you talk about some races like this where the top owners and teams and other drivers that are around in the area are seeing them and passing that information along, which, like I said, is I believe how – Benny Parsons found Greg Biffle, but it's just great for the sport of racing. It is. It definitely is. So we'll keep an eye on it as they continue to uh, uh, work on this list of finalists or semifinalists, and we'll keep everybody up to date. Uh, But we're going to move on now to the Arkham Menard Series. They had a season opener race, 200. Oh, my goodness, was there a lot of action in this race. Um, it was on Friday night. They moved it up from Saturday because of the rain uh, to Friday night after the truck race. Uh, so it was a long night, but it was well worth the rate. And uh, there was a lot of action there. You want to start us off with uh, our notes on the uh, ARCA 200 race at Daytona? I certainly can, and that would be my pleasure as Gus Dean took the lead on the final restart in overtime and then held on to earn his third career Arkham and Ard Series victor, victory there Friday night's Daytona ARCA 200. And Dean's first career win came at Talladega Super Speedway in 2017, and then he picked up a victory in Minnesota. His second one was at Elko Speedway in 2018. So it, for him, I'm sure he was pretty excited to be back in victory lane uh, with that last win coming in 2018. Also, uh, Jake Finch, uh, that's a familiar name. We've talked about him quite a lot. He led a race high 65 laps. He had a really good race going. He was in position to win, uh, but on that final restart, he got a push in the draft that sent his number 20 Toyota head on into the turn three wall on that final lap. It was heartbreaking to watch that happen. Uh, Finch, whose father's uh, is James Finch, who won the Daytona ARCA 300, or 200 three times 
as a car owner uh, and as also the owner of Phoenix Racing. A lot of race fans will remember that team. Uh, anyway, he he ended up with uh, – Jake Finch ended up with an 11th place uh, at the end of that race. So kind of disappointing I'm try. after such a good run. I am going to try my best here. Thomas An- Anunziata, if I got that correctly. If not, I apologize. Uh, drove Jeff McClure's. Yeah, right. Uh, Jeff McClure's number 44 Chevrolet to second in his first career Arkham Menard Series start. The former Arkham Menard Series and NASCAR Craftsman Truck Series driver Nick Tucker, who owns Anunziata's Trans Am TA2 team, and then our former Arkham Menard Series winner Brian Keselowski, who was the team spotter, were working with McClure throughout the week. Yeah, that was really cool to see him have such a good finish uh, in one of his uh, first starts. Uh, the defending race winner, remember Greg Vanoff, uh, one of our uh, drivers that have been on the show here, uh, he ended up finishing in third place, at, and he had a rough night. Uh, and it paired him with his fifth-place finish at Bristol Motor Speedway. Um, let's see, in his last series start in 2023, it marks the first time that he earned back-to-back top-five finishes. So uh, that's pretty cool to see, too. Uh, I know he had uh, – it didn't come easy for him. He kind of went back to the back and then ended up coming right back through the field. So – it was good to see him uh, make the best of a, a difficult night. Another regular uh, guest here on Fan for Racing was Christian Rose as he recovered from a mid-race spin through the tribal to come back and finish fourth, which is his best finish on a track larger than one mile in length. Yeah, that was really cool. Now, this Tim Richmond that we're going to talk about is not the Tim Richmond that a lot of people have heard about from days gone by. This Tim Richmond is from Ottawa, Illinois, and uh, he had a very big career week at Daytona this week. He started outside the front row. He ran inside the top ten for the first uh, most of the first 70 laps. And on the race's penultimate restart, he was shuffled outside the top ten, but he was able to maneuver through the mayhem on that last lap and, and still brought his car home to finish in fifth place. That's his best career series finish and the first top 10 finish since he finished ninth at Toledo Speedway in 2020. So uh, a big night for Tim Richmond, even though he kind of ran into some problems late in the race. When we talk about drivers from other countries, uh, for me anyway, as as a race fan and a broadcaster covering it, this is a first of Gil Linster from Frisange, Luxembourg. Uh, drove to a seventh-place finish in his Arkham Menard Series debut. Linster made an impressive save when he was the recipient of the mistimed push in the draft in the middle of a corner, but rebounded and avoided trouble on the final lap for his first top-ten finish in an Arkham, Arkham Menard Series race by a European driver since 2008. And that was by Dario Franchitti, who finished 10th in the Daytona. Yeah, cool to see. That was an amazing save. And uh, for that being his first race, it was pretty impressive. 
Also, uh, the General Tire Pole Award winner was Willie Mullins. He led the first nine laps of the race, but he was sidelined after a really hard crash off turn four on lap 62. Mullins was uh, unable to avoid Scott Melton's disabled car after Melton made contact with the wall uh, following contact with another car. Now, Mullins ended up finishing 28th, just one position ahead of Scott Melton. But uh, to get that pole award was a really big deal for Willie Mullins. And we're still talking about the Arkham Menard series, but the name that you may not recognize from that series, and that's Marco <laughs> Andretti, as he ran inside the top ten for much of the first half of the race. But unfortunately, his car suffered damage in the backstretch spin on lap 41. Andretti seemed poised to recover and finish in the top ten, but then a cut tire sent him into the turn one wall on lap 77 and ended his night in the 25th position. Oh, man. Uh, now fans will remember this name, too, Shane Van Gisbergen. He had a Super Speedway debut this weekend. We're going to hear him a lot, I think, this season. Uh, he was snake-bitten throughout most of the day. His car stumbled leaving pit road in qualifying, which meant he was not part of the drafting pack, and his speed was 35th fastest overall. Not good enough to be locked in to the field. So without the provisional starting position available, Van Gisbergen made the starting lineup when Eric Caudel's team withdrew. So with that withdrawal, it meant that Shane Van Gisbergen could race uh, without a provisional starting position available. Uh, Van Gisbergen made that starting lineup uh, with that withdrawal, meaning that the three-time Australian V8 Supercar Series champion uh, would make the starting um, would start in 34th position. Now, just four laps into the race, though, uh, Van Gisbergen was caught up in a huge crash in turn one, and it did significant enough damage to the rear end of his car. Uh, but I'll tell you what, I was impressed that the team made repairs, uh, allowing the Van Gisbergen to return back to the track eventually leading to his 29th place finish. Uh, and that doesn't sound like it was a very good uh, finish, but the fact that they were able to repair that car and get him back on the track was very impressive. That car was very damaged, and I didn't think he would be back. Well, uh, and this one's key. I want to hit on a couple of key things here real quick before we move to the rest of the race um, for Van Gisbergen. That was his, uh, I'm trying to think of what they, what they call it, but his, to get approval to run the Xfinity Series at Daytona, he had to make that mm-hmm. race and put laps out on the track. Um, and keep in mind, he came from the Australian V8 supercars, doesn't have a whole lot of oval track. I think he ran two truck races last year um, in the truck series, if I'm not mistaken. So this is all really, really new to him. So just to be out there and get track time, and I know he didn't get a lot of it, unfortunately, there with with those incidences, but that seat time was so valuable to him. It really was, and and he did make it into the uh, Xfinity Series race. Um, so that was really cool. Now, when we cover the rest of it, there were 11 lead changes among six drivers, which is one fewer leader than 2023, 
but one more as far as lead changes over last year. Okay, and we were talking about that on Thursday too. It's good to know those kind of things so that as you're following the race, you kind of know whether or not you're, they're tracking on uh, setting some records or breaking a streak or whatever. Uh, there, now, in this race, there was also slowed by nine caution flags for a total of 49 laps. And when you think about it, it was a 101-lap race. So half of those laps were run under caution, almost half. Now, the next race for the Arkham and Ard Series, that'll be the General Tire 150 out at Phoenix Raceway on Friday, March uh, 8th. race will be televised live on FS1 at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time and then broadcast on select affiliates of the MRN radio network nationwide. And that's a big one because I believe that should also be, a, or has in the past, been a joint with the Arkham and Ard Series West as well right. as the Cup Series and Xfinity Series are out there as well. So there again, you get to showcase your talent in front of some of the top-level drivers and teams. Uh, that's always a big showcase for, for these drivers. Absolutely, and you are correct. That's going to be the uh, Arkham and Art Series West season opener out at Phoenix Raceway on March the 8th, the General Tire 150. Uh, and like you say, it's on a big stage. Uh, because uh, you've got the Arca Menard Series there, you've got the Arca West Series. It'll be a combined race with two series, and both of those series earning points. Uh, now, just so you know, uh, it'll be the second race for the Arca Menard Series, the first race for the Arca West, and then the Arca Menard Series East. Um, the West, by the way, will have a total of 12 races They'll start at Phoenix and end at Phoenix in November. Uh, the Arkham and Art Series East, I believe they only have eight races, and they're going to start at Five Flag Speedway with the Pensacola 150 on March the 23rd, if you want to mark your car calendar for that season opening race. Uh, their final race, uh, the final race of their eight races that comprise their season, will be the ARCA 200 at Bristol Motor Speedway on September the 10th. And I believe that's on a big stage as well uh, with some of NASCAR's top series also in attendance there. Quite the season. I know we just got started. We've been waiting all year, and we are semi-underway. You mentioned that first one for the West Series isn't going to be until March 8th. But once we get rolling here, it seems like the season just blows by. So we've got to enjoy it while we can. Uh, I know we got a lot to cover, like you said, throughout the year, but it, it just seems like it's never enough. Yep. For the ARCA West, they'll be racing, we mentioned Phoenix already. There's a couple of races at Irwindale Speedway, uh, Kern County Raceway. They're calling it Kevin Harvick's Kern County Raceway. That used to be a home track for Kevin Harvick. Uh, Portland International Raceway, Sonoma Raceway, Jasta Speedway. Uh, Tri-City Raceway, Madera Speedway, All-American Speedway, and actually they're going to have two races at Kevin Harvick's Kern Raceway. So the Arca West has a total of 12 races, uh, all at really uh, fantastic tracks out there in the West. Then, you know what I didn't see, though, is Las Vegas Motor Speedway on that list. That's interesting. Um, Also... For the ARCA East, in addition to Five Flag Speedway for their season over opener, 
They'll be racing at Dover Motor Speedway, Nashville Fairground Speedway, Flat Rock Speedway, Iowa Speedway, Lucas Oil Indianapolis Raceway Park, the Milwaukee Mile, and Bristol Motor Speedway, all on the list for the Arkham Menard Series East. I know we didn't highlight the Arkham Menard Series schedule changes as much as we did the Cup Series and Xfinity and Trucks, but yeah, there were a certain a couple of changes there. Um, I believe Flat Rock is a new one, from what I recall, too, for the East Series. So mixing it up a little bit, but no matter where they race, they put on a great show. They definitely do. So, uh, yeah, let's go ahead. The, the, look, I'm going through the schedule for the uh, Arkham Menard Series, and I think it's pretty familiar with uh, the races that they've raced in the past. Uh, but, yeah, we do have to kind of move on now. Uh, we're going to move on to NASCAR's top three series, and uh, it's pretty exciting. Uh, we're going to start with the, another action-packed night, uh, a race full of cautions, uh, but it was really great to see uh, Nick Sanchez come home with his first victory in the NASCAR Craftsman Truck Series. Uh, he had cars wrecking and flipping all around him, uh, and it was an overtime event. Uh, but he was able to claim that first victory in the Fresh from Florida 250 on Friday night. Uh, it was also the 100th milestone win uh, for uh, Chevrolet. So it, not only did he get a big win for Rev Racing, it was a big win for Chevrolet as well. Well, and that was one of those of, uh, we waited for so long last year. I know there were two races that come to mind. I think Texas was one of them. I can't remember the other one where he had it all but when one ended up in a shuffle. Uh, I know on one of them he admits he made a mistake and, and that he held on to that and talked about that. So to see him finally break out and get that victory, we're going to see more from Nick Sanchez uh, throughout this year alone, I think. Yeah, I think this is going to be a banner year for Nick Sanchez. He did come close so many times in 2023, uh, but it eluded him, that victory. Uh, and that's why this was, I think, pretty special, especially the race in a race that was plagued with 12 caution flags spanning the scheduled 100 laps. Uh, again, a lot of cautions in a, in a relatively short race uh, that was extended into overtime due to a wreck. And ended under yellow after the twelve after a twelve truck wreck, uh, say that fast twelve times, uh, broke out on the back stretch. The wreck happened behind Sanchez, and he just sailed right by it uh, and drove on to capture that victory. Now, originally they had Roger Carruth finishing in second place, but NASCAR changed that overnight, giving the second place finish actually to Corey Heim who came in second, and Raja Karuth is credited with the third-place uh, finish. And that's one of those, uh, you talk about that scramble at the end, I know in the Cup Series as well, uh, really had to do a little bit of research, and the final run down there, again, everything's always unofficial until NASCAR makes sure they got it all right, and they use all means available to finalize that. But it was a real scramble there at the end. One thing I want to highlight here of talking about Nick Sanchez with Rev Motorsports, they are partnered, or alliance, I guess there you go, alliance is the correct term, with Spire Motorsports, who is 
the former KBM, Kyle Busch Motorsports. So we'll get into that a little yeah. bit more when we talk about the final full rundown. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really cool uh, story there that you bring up. The fact that KBM kind of merged in with, well, they didn't really merge. Uh, Spire bought them out. So they have all that KBM equipment and, and everything. So it, it's pretty cool. Uh, but I want to get back to this wreck uh, that happened. Uh, the the last lap accident appeared to ignite contact between Raja Caruth and the number 91 of Jack Wood as the trucks began collecting the 17 of Taylor Grace uh, Toyota flipped before it landed on its tires and all the drivers involved were able to climb out of their trucks. Uh, Brett Holmes ended up finishing fourth place. Um, The number 76 Spencer Boyd uh, debuted of his Freedom Racing team. He finished in fifth. Uh, then it was Stefan Parsons in the number 78, Matt Crafton in the 88, Timmy Hill in the 56, Brian Dozat in the 28, and Christian Eckes rounds out the top 10 in the number 19. So just again, to further recap, Johnny Sauter in the number 5 for Nice Motorsports won that opening stage. Tyler Ankrum in the number 18 won uh, stage 2. And both of them were caught up in on-track incidents. Ankrum had the highest showing of the two. He ended up in 11th place. Sauter didn't fare so well. He ended up 29th at the end of the night. Uh, Ty in the number 90, he started from the pole, but he had a few miscues throughout the night, including a pit road penalty. He ended up finishing in 15th. Uh, there were 24 lead changes among 12 drivers with a record tying, again, 12 cautions with a 52 yellow flag laps. Again, the race had, what, 100 laps, and 52 of those laps were under caution. The average speed of the race was 98.933 miles per hour. And uh, I want to get your thoughts about those top 10 finishers because uh, at any point in the night you knew Whoever was in the top 10 was probably not going to be the top 10 at the end of the night. Well, you t- you're starting out the year the same way as we ended last year and cover all the time. You take the words right out of my mouth. There's a lot of races where the competitiveness is there and you don't know who's going to win till the end. At a super speedway, it is double or triple that because of what we saw. And I know there was a lot of lashback already on Raja Caruth. The bump he made caused part of that wreck. It's super speedway racing. I, you know, you hate to see yeah. it, and drivers will improve. Rajah Karuth, a fairly young driver, um, hopefully doesn't make that same mistake again. But we saw it throughout the night and from veterans all the way to young drivers. Some of it really just the way super speedway racing is. So you're, this is one of you're those absolutely you call right. oppor- yeah, opportunity races, and I don't want to take anything away from any driver that wins on a super speedway because that is part of it. Um, Corey Heim was one. We know him as a top-quality driver, championship contender last year. Uh, my opinion, was the best driver throughout the year, but wasn't even really up front involved in the racing for the lead or the stage wins, as you mentioned, and he ends up second. So that strategy worked out for him. It didn't for some others. 
But going mm-hmm. back to then Raja Karuth in third place, that's one of the Spire Motorsports trucks they talked about was taken over for KBM. So they had two in the top five. Then you got these drivers you mentioned, Spencer Boyd with his new team, Brent Holmes, awesome to see him with a self-owned mm-hmm. team get a top five. Uh, again, you can say it's circumstances. If there weren't all the wrecks and the top drivers get knocked out, that's part of racing. I mean, that could happen at any track. Yes, it's more prone on these super speedways, but what that does for them for the year by having that kind of finish coming out the gate at Daytona, Stefan Parsons right there in sixth place as well, another one yep. um, in the number 75. And then you had a couple of the veterans, Matt Crafton and Christian Eckes, who I think is, again, going to be a top contending championship contender in the Bill McAnally, Holloman McAnally, number 19, who came out uh, guns a-blazing last year with the new team. Absolutely. And we'll talk about, talking about accidents that happen on super speedway tracks, uh, we'll talk about it when we get to the Cup Series even. And these are NASCAR's premier top-tier drivers. Uh, and uh, one of the things I heard an interview with uh, uh, Alex Bowman, and he was saying uh, he didn't even realize that, you know, some of the things that were going on or what even caused the accident. And that's the thing I think a lot of people forget when they criticize drivers. Uh, as much as you think these drivers can see everything, we see things a lot more than the drivers can see sitting inside that car. So, and I think Alex Bowman brought that out in his interview. Uh, the, the interviewer was telling him things that he had no idea about. And uh, it's because they don't have the visibility in that car uh, to see some of the things that we see as a spectator. So fans need to kind of keep that in mind uh, when they criticize some of these drivers, uh, that it's not as visible to the driver as it is to us. Well, and I know not just covering the races, I know there's a couple of the hot topics that we'll get to later tonight. I'm sure this discussion will come up. But one of the things I want to throw in here real quick, watching Race Hub today, Brad Keselowski was on there, and when they break it down, he showed, they talked about it at the clash. You can't be mad at the guy behind you that hit you because the push and shove actually came from two or three cars back. That's true on super speedways, too, when you talk about the push and the momentum they get from the driver behind them, and yeah, then they get up too fast to the car in front of them. So that, too, he broke it down where there was one where everybody wanted to point the finger at, ex-driver, you know, that got into so-and-so, run it back, slow it down, and break it down. The push and everything came from about two rows back. And that's why you can't really start pointing fingers. It's super speedway racing. That's what happens. Mm -hmm. If one driver slows down because he sees a potential wreck happening and he slows down, depending on how close those cars behind him are, they may not be able to slow down in turn by the time they realize that he has slowed down. We're talking fractions of a second to make that decision, and that's what they call an accordion thing that happens. One driver slows, and the next driver, can they stop in time? And it's all of the drivers subsequently behind them have that same problem. So uh, it's not just uh, the pushing, you know, one driver slowing down, but the other driver's getting pushed, so that in-between drivers getting pushed from behind and slowed down from in front 
what do you do? It's like being the cream in an Oreo cookie. There's not a lot they can do. Well, I know specifically we'll talk about that in the Xfinity race coming up of talking about one driver seeing something and reacting and another driver doing something else, and it just brings them together. Mm -hmm. But we'll hit that in the Xfinity Series race coming up. Okay, and I know it happened in the in the Cup Series, too. So these guys do, ha- do not have the same kind of experience that they have, and so I, it's a little harsh, I think, to criticize these drivers. Um, uh, it, it's all about getting the experience, and that's what this is. Uh, but, yeah, I think there are a lot of accidents in this race, um, and a lot of drivers taken out and some really good ones. There are only a few things uh that caused somebody to get out of the race for something other than an accident. Uh Lane Riggs uh, had a damaged vehicle policy. Uh he couldn't get his car fixed in time to get back into the race. There was a whole overheating issue for Wallace Allen. Um but accidents, there's several here. Uh Thad Moffat, Ty Dillon, Jake Garcia, then you had uh, Keith McGee, Ben Rhodes last year's champion caught up in an accident. Johnny Sauter, another champion in the truck series. Chase Purdy, Tony Bridinger, Matt Mills, Mason Massey, all caught up in accidents. Uh, Dean Thompson, uh, let's see if I'm reading this right. No, Dean Thompson was in an accident. Matt Mills, hold on here. Actually, Tony Bridinger, Matt Mills and Mason Madsey were all running at the end of the race, but they were multiple laps behind. Uh, other accidents, Dean Thompson, Cody Rohrbach, Corey Roper, Daniel Dye, and Corey LaJoy, along with Taylor Gray, all caught up in accidents. And there are some good drivers in that list. So sometimes there's nothing you can do. You're just caught up in somebody else's mess. Uh, let's and, and that's why I say, all right. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, Go ahead. And that's why I say with that of a lot of people talk about of Daytona is Daytona. The regular season and running for the championship really starts this next next week at Atlanta. Yes, there are points on the line and all that, but winning at Daytona is something so special and separate that that kind of gets pushed to the side as a separate event. Um, once we go to it really does. At and before you season, go, oh, go ahead. I'm going to say something, yeah, yeah. though, before you go to points. Okay. Um, that, that it really does. The grind of the season will start next week. Yes, Atlanta is now considered a super speedway, uh, if you will, the non-restrictor plate um, style of track and racing, but not as exposed as Daytona or Talladega. And that's where I say that's where we'll really start to see the separation of who's contenders for the year. Absolutely. Uh, we mentioned that uh, Nick Sanchez, who won the race, uh, it was his first victory in 24 uh, Truck Series races. Uh, Corey Heim, who came in second, posted his second top 10 finish in three races at Daytona. Uh, and, of course, his first top 10 of the year. It's the only race of the year. Raja Karuth posted his uh, first top 10 finish in two races at Daytona. Uh, Lane Riggs, who actually finished in 33rd place, was actually the highest finishing rookie of that race. So uh, pretty interesting stuff there. 
uh, with regard to how that uh, those top drivers uh, they don't have a lot of uh, top ten finishes uh, or a lot of starts in the series. Well, and, and I kind of hit on this, and I didn't realize how much of a difference it makes, but. When we go to the points, you'd think first race of the year, the points should be as they ran. That's not the case. Mm-hmm. Your points no. leader is actually Tyler Ankrum with 43 points as he picked up the stage win, which means he got 10 points plus the one playoff point. Nick Sanchez is one point behind him with 42, but he's got five playoff points with, uh, in his playoff bucket with that victory. Talked about Christian Eckes, 10th in the race, but ran good in those first two stages, is actually third in points. Then is Brent Holmes, and they, that was at 39. Brent Holmes and Matt Crafton tied at 38. Corey Heim, I mentioned, not running up in the top mix of it throughout the race, finished second, but is actually sixth in points with only 37 because he got no stage points in the first two stages. Mm-hmm. Then you got Ty mm-hmm. Majeski, Rajak Karuth, again, third place, but didn't have the stage points. Spencer Boyd ninth and Bailey Curry your top ten, and that's again just after that one race. The mixture of that really exposed here shows you how important those stage points in the first and second stage are. You can't just ride around in the back and then hope for the good finish. And this is where every point really counts too, because you mentioned there was a tie there between Brett Holmes and Matt Crafton for that fourth place spot. Well, there's another tie for just 11 points behind the leader, and that was between Spencer Boyd and Bailey Curry uh, at just 11 points back. Uh, it's That's how tight these 10 drivers were on the racetrack and when it comes down to the points. And I know Kevin Harvick brought it out during the broadcast. It's first race of the year, uh, one or point, two points don't matter. Look at several of the championship battles to get into that next round of the playoffs or into the playoffs advance on came down to one two three points every point does matter at this point in the season it certainly does it's just amazing uh what how close it is at the beginning of the season and like you say just because you had a good finish doesn't necessarily mean it's going to put you in that spot for the point standings all right um we're going to move on to the Xfinity Series, unless there's something more you wanted to say about the Truck Series. No, looking at this, uh, I know it's uh, the talk amongst our group. I think, uh, as Mike pointed yeah. out, we had, uh, I think, pretty much everybody in the group chat throughout the races over the weekend. I think there's some interesting things that could happen here in the Truck Series. Again, Nick Sanchez getting that first win. We know a couple of the annual contenders, Corey Heim, Ty Majeski, but you got these young drivers and some that just haven't had the opportunity in a full-time ride, such as Bailey Curry with Nice Motorsports. So I think we're going to see a great Truck Series championship battle this year. Yeah, it's going to be fun to watch. Um, I have fun watching racing no matter what time of year it is. But, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I know some of the complaints is that you've got so many young drivers with little experience. Uh, they're very aggressive and sometimes overly aggressive. But one of the things that you have to kind of keep in mind here, too, is that that's part of their learning curve. 
Uh, and that's what the truck series is all about, learning how to temper yourself, how to uh, manage those emotions and the things that happen on the track so that you can be there at the end and win these races. Uh, it's a maturity level thing. So um, uh, I, I think it's part of the learning curve for a lot of these new drivers that are coming up, and that's uh, what the, the truck series is all about. Uh, it certainly is. You can't argue that. Uh, that is why it's the kind of the entry level to the truck series, not mandated, but most of them go truck series first, at least for a little bit of experience. Exactly right. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and move over to uh, the Xfinity series. This was a big race as well. The last race of the weekend that we watched late on Monday night Um and uh, it was really cool. Austin Hill made it a three-peat at Daytona. He's won the last three season-opening races at Daytona. Excuse me, I've got the hiccups here. For uh, the NASCAR Xfinity Series. So, uh, again, while other drivers were competing and crashing uh, in Monday night's uh, United Reynolds 300 at Daytona, <clears throat> Austin Hill was playing a different game, according to the Newswire. He was uh, playing Monopoly with those three consecutive wins in the season opening race. Well, and anybody that wants to argue, oh, it's all about luck, and it, you just got to be in the right position at the right time, needs to get to Austin Hill. You mentioned it, three row. You don't get lucky at Daytona. Yes, he had some luck involved. A couple of the wrecks, and he was involved in the wrecks. That's why that headline, I'm like, oh, right. he was involved in a couple of them, but recovered the team, uh, putting that car back together, and then him having the patience. And, yes, there were a couple of wrecks he got, if you call it luck or whatever, got through them, whether it be luck or a little bit of driving skill. He's obviously got some skill. You don't win three in a row at Daytona purely based on luck. Yeah, and, and here's further evidence of that, Jay. Uh, not only was it his third consecutive win at Daytona in the season opening event, his seventh career win, and five of those seven wins are all on super speedways. So he is uh, very, very good on the super speedways. Uh, there again, that's, there's skill involved there. It is not just luck. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, the number 18 of Sheldon Creed, and there's some there's some bad, there's some history here between these two drivers, uh, Austin Hill and Sheldon Creed. They were teammates last year, and now they're both racing for two different teams. Austin Hill is still at RCR, but Sheldon Creed uh, was the runner-up in his first start at Joe Gibbs Racing. So uh, kind of interesting that they kind of picked up where they left off. Um, it was his eighth runner-up finish. Uh, Jordan Anderson's racing uh, two of its entries inside the top five. The number 31 of Parker Retzlaff uh, finished a career-best third. And then the number 32 of Jordan Anderson finished in fourth place. It was uh, Chandler Smith who ended up rounding out that top five. Any thoughts there on the top five? A lot. First off, you under, you mentioned it, that first and second place finish. I know the caution came out, and it wasn't really a race to the checkered. 
I wanted to see Sheldon Creed and Austin Hill come off turn four side by side and see who had what to, to finish that race. As you mentioned, there's some history there. So I, I was kind of rooting for that and expecting that really to be the headline of who came out of that battle. But then you go to third mm-hmm. and fourth, Parker Retzlaff and Jordan Anderson racing. I felt so bad for Jordan Anderson. I believe it was with two laps to go, three or two laps to go. Jordan Anderson out front. That in, a, in mm-hmm. itself, a great story. Larry McReynolds' father-in-law was supposed to be the crew chief because of the race delays and the Daytona 500 delay. Wasn't actually on the box for him. It would have been the biggest story, I think, to come out of Daytona. Got too far out in front, ended up fourth, but was still thrilled to death um, with that finish as well as just the team to be third and fourth. And then you have Chandler Smith, another one that moved teams, went from uh, college racing over to Joe Gibbs Racing okay. in that number 81. Mm-hmm. So call it an advancement. I mean, you've got to consider Joe, Joe Gibbs Racing one of the top when it comes to Xfinity or the cup level, um, coming home with that fifth-place finish. Absolutely. Uh, some other big names here in the next five drivers that are going to round out the top ten, starting with Riley Erbst in the number eight, uh, 98. He overcame that late penalty and ended up finishing in sixth place. John Hunter Nemechek in the number 20. Justin Algauer in the number seven. Brandon Jones driving the number nine. And in the number 16, A.J. Allmendinger round out that top ten. So uh, some really good drivers in that group. There again, a lot of storylines, especially when you look long-term for the year. Talked about Riley Herbst last year, finally getting his first victory, coming at his home track of Las Vegas, was there at the end. Last restart, NASCAR said he laid back on the restart. I have to agree with that call. Whether he feels he did it intentionally or not, it definitely appeared when they broke it down and watched the replay of that that there was some laying back, you know, it's one of those, I, I made the comment, whatever happens, don't put NASCAR in a position where they got to make a judgment call because you might not like it. Um, but still, as you mentioned, recovered, finished fifth. John Hunter Nemechek making one of, I think, eight starts maybe on the year as he's moved up to the cup level, but still racing for Joe Gibbs Racing throughout the year. And then Justin, Brandon Jones, two-year junior motorsports, and we expect them to be there, not just this race, but throughout the year. And A.J. Allmendinger, kind of another big story of returning to the Xfinity Series to run full-time and only making limited cup start, comes home with that 10th place for college racing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really amazing. Uh, another thing that I thought was amazing is the rookie took the pole, uh, driving the number two for Richard Childress Racing, Jesse Love, led flag to flag in the opening stage uh, to win that stage. And then his teammate, Austin Hill, in the number 21, scored that stage two victory. And, of course, uh, the stage three victory as well as the race victory. Uh, So RCR is off to a pretty good start here for the season. And I think this uh, rookie, Jesse Love, uh, he's going to make mistakes, but he's he's, he's been very impressive. I think so far. I compared a lot to the to the previous year when we saw Ty Gibbs um, move from the Arkham and Ard series where he won the championship, and I think he only had eight or nine victories. 
Jesse Love won half of the races, 10 out of 20 last year in the Arkham Menard Series in picking up that championship. To see that talent truly shine through here, again, he didn't necessarily get the finish of where he was running, caught up in something. That's Daytona. Got it. But I think he showed what kind of talent he has. And, yeah, I, I think we're going to see some big things out of him this year, especially now with um, Richard Childress Racing two teammates that are getting along, if you will, and not competing uh, against each other as hard as maybe we saw last year. Yes, yes, indeed. Of course, we've been watching Jesse Love through the Arkham Menard Series uh, races as well, and he's he's been impressive in the in the Arca Series. I think he's raced uh, both the East, the West, as well as the main Arkham Menard Series, uh, and he's been very impressive. So I'm kind of anxious to continue watching him throughout the season here. Um, there were 19 lead changes among 14 drivers and nine cautions for 44 yellow flag laps in this race. And um, uh, the average speed of the race was 108.119 miles per hour. Uh, Hill, uh, that was his seventh victory in the 82 Xfinity Series starts. Uh, his first victory in first top ten this year, of course, and his third victory in third top ten finish in just six races at Daytona. He's won half of the six races he's raced uh, in the Daytona uh, event. Sheldon Creed uh, posted his third top ten finish in six races at Daytona. So three top fives or three top tens in six races is pretty good as well. Um Parker Retzlaff posted his third top ten finish in three races. That's really impressive for uh, Parker. Shane Van Gisbergen finished in 12th. He was the highest finishing rookie of the race. How great was that for him after what he experienced in the truck series? Austin Hill is the fourth different driver to win three or more uh, consecutive races at Daytona uh, for the season opener. He joins uh, Dale Earnhardt who did it in 1990, 91, 92, and in 93. Tony Stewart did it four consecutive races from 2008 to 2011. Dale Earnhardt Jr., the other driver who did it in three consecutive races, 2002, three, and four. So uh, pretty impressive uh, facts there. And there, I want to point that out again. You're talking about talent. Dale Earnhardt, Tony Stewart, Dale Earnhardt Jr., very extremely talented drivers. They obviously knew how to handle. I know my dad and I talked about this tonight uh, prior to me coming on the show. There is some skill to it. I know with Dale Earnhardt, anyway, you go back that far, it was a little bit different era where you didn't quite have the pack racing and possibility of as bad a wrecks um, like we see today. But it, there's still some skill to it, and we saw that carry through with Dale Earnhardt Jr., talk about the Xfinity Series Cup level, they, they nicknamed him the Pied Piper, I mean, because he was always out front and leading that pack. Mm-hmm. That is so true. Uh, the margin of victory in this race was .591 seconds, so uh, not too much distance uh, between Austin Hill and Sheldon Creed. Uh, but, again, there were accidents, not as many as we saw in the truck series, 
but three drivers didn't meet the damaged vehicle policy and ended up uh, ending their nights early. Uh, first to Josh Williams, Frankie Munoz, who is making uh, his, you know, I think he's running full-time in the Xfinity Series this year. And the other DVP car was Jeremy Clements. Uh, several drivers did get out of the race early due to accidents. Carol Weatherman, Haley Deegan, Sam Mayer, uh, and Daniel Suarez. Then you've got Josh Balicki, Dawson Cram, and Leland Honeyman. Uh, and then the other accident was Sage Karam. So, uh, again, not as many race accidents as we saw in the truck series, but there's still quite a few drivers who uh, ended their day early because of accidents. Well, and mentioned this, and I know they aren't listed under there as accidents because they were still running at the end, but we talked about this, preluded it earlier, Cole Custer and Justin Algar battling up front. I believe Custer was leading or maybe running second. Justin Algar had just gotten pushed out of lead. Yeah came up the track to side draft, normal move, and is part of the racing. Cole Custer was coming up, saw some debris, and wanted to move away from it, kind of came down, and they, they slammed into each other side to side. And that was one of those where I know everybody wanted to blame Justin Auger, horrible move. It really wasn't. It's just one of those things that happened. One driver saw something came down. Auger was coming up to make a side draft move, which had it worked, would have been considered a great move just so happened mm-hmm. to come together at the wrong time, and it ended up costing them. Cole Custer having another situation there right at the end, again getting pushed back to 13th, um, whereas Algar was able to rebound and move ahead and finish eighth. And, and I think that says a lot for Cole Custer to, to take ownership of that and explain. He was on the radio right away uh, asking the spotter to make sure uh, that Justin Algauer knew why he came down there. Uh, and it wasn't Justin's fault. He took full accountability for it. And that's one of those, you mentioned it earlier, the split-second timing of it, and you're not talking about if you watch the in-car cams, how much these cars are moving around and just controlling them, trying to keep them straight, especially when you get that bump from behind. We'll talk about that specifically when we get to the Cup Series. But, I mean, it's the littlest of margin that's causing this. And once you, once you do get a little out of shape, as, you, as we call it, that you're so close to somebody else, it can cause a bigger problem. It's not that it was a bad move or a bad decision or, you know, wrong. It just happened. <laughs> exactly. We're talking split seconds, I mean, fractions of a second, uh, in order for some of these drivers to be making some of their uh, decisions on the racetrack. And Cole saw something on the track. He felt he needed to avoid it so he wouldn't damage his car. And uh, it's Dustin Algauer coming up uh, for side drafting. Nobody did anything wrong. They both did the right thing based on the information that they had at hand. They just didn't know what each other were doing. So Justin had no way to know Mm -hmm. that Cole saw that debris. And you mentioned it earlier, too, that I think people don't realize of, well, just let off the gas. Don't run into the guy in front of you. You lift off that gas or, you know, even for a, a split second or tenth of a second, the guy behind you're you doesn't eat. know that. There aren't brake lights or anything. That's right. They're already on your bumper. 
you know, and if they don't hit you straight or give you too hard a hit as you're letting off the gas, you're going to get squirrely. I think that's kind of what happened in the Cup Series. But there, too, you're, you're talking yeah. about just easing out of that throttle a little bit, thinking you're avoiding something in front of you and you're going to get it from behind. Not anybody's fault. It just happens. It just happens in a, in a split second, uh, faster than you can imagine. Uh, okay, let's go ahead and uh, cover the points report here. Okay. All right, we'll see how this one matches up here uh, as compared to the trucks. This one a little bit more in line um, than the truck series was. Austin Hill is your points leader by 11 points. Again, was up front. You mentioned winning stage number two, so has a six playoff points already. Sheldon Creed, 11 points back. Riley Herbst mentioned uh, his finish at the end ends up in third. Parker Retzlaff. Then Justin Algar, Jordan Anderson, just such a great way to start the season for Jordan. I'm so proud yep. for him. And then we got Chandler Smith, A.J. Allmendinger, Cole Custer, Brandon Jones is your top 10. You know, in the Xfinity Series, we take 12 to the playoffs, so I want to hit on those two real quick. You mentioned the rookie Jesse Love, led that whole first section, got his playoff point, is 11th in points, even with that rough finish. And then Ryan Ellis in 12th. And their range there for yeah, the top 12 is 30, 33 points. Yeah. There is one. No, there's a couple of ties here, too. Uh, Chandler Smith and A.J. Allmendinger for seventh place, tied at 27 points. And then you got Parker Retschoff and Justin Algauer tied at 25 points for that fourth place spot. And it'll be interesting because if I'm not mistaken, I don't think Jordan Anderson is running. The team uh, will be in that number 32. Um, Parker Retzlaff is their full-time driver in the number 31, but I don't think Jordan Anderson is running all the races. So that'll shift where he's at, but it's just great to see him up there uh, for that first race of the year. It truly is. Uh, I don't know if you saw the uh, coverage of the races, uh, for the Xfinity Series, but they were talking about Ryan Ellis. You know, Ryan Ellis used to be the PR person. I know he was, uh, I don't know all the drivers he uh, was a PR rep for, but I know he was a PR rep with um, uh, Matt DiBenedetto. In fact, you and I uh, talked to him briefly when we went to talk to Matt DiBenedetto. Were you with me when I did that? I was good. Yep, I was going to say, I think I do remember actually going through him uh, to get the interview with uh, Matt Benedetto. Yes, yes. So uh, it's good to see him uh, making that transition uh, from being a PR to being a race car driver in the number 43. And the couple of one, people... One of those, and hopefully we get to continue that and cover it the, the whole season... Um, I know we've talked about different ones. Carl Edwards of handing out just a card with his name on it. Who ones mm-hmm. that were sweeping garages um, just to be around it. Ty Majeski working as a mechanic and a simulator driver. There's been a couple of those. I think Alex Bowman went, went that route with Hendrick Motorsports before moving up. So there is so many mm-hmm. paths, um, and it just shows the dedication. It really does. Shane Van Gisbergen's listed in 13th place. And I want to do a shout-out for Blaine Perkins. Uh, I followed Blaine from his Canon Pro Series days, uh, racing out at uh, Irwindale Speedway and Kern County Speedway. Uh, Blaine Perkins uh, 
did not have a good first season with uh, racing, but he is, uh, I think, going to have a much better uh, sophomore year in the Xfinity Series, and I'm kind of looking forward to it. To see him in 14th place uh, does my heart good. (laughs) And that's one of those, the driver talent is one thing, but it's always about getting the right mesh with the team, the crew chief, just so many mm-hmm. things you can't just take away from a driver or say it's, you know, the driver. And we've seen that with a couple different ones um, that I think you're right. I, I think we'll keep an eye on that throughout the year. As you said, of last year, his first year in the Xfinity series anyway, um, the improvement already that we've seen. Absolutely. Okay. I want to go back to, um, let's see if I can get to the page. Cup Series. And the Ambitter Health, I know how to get to it. Okay. Uh, Ambitter Health is the next race for the Cup Series, uh, and we'll talk more about that on Thursday. Uh, but let's go to the Daytona 500 uh, that was also postponed from Sunday to Monday. And uh, that race, uh, another race where you didn't know who was going to end up being the ones uh, to be up front when it was all said and done. But in this case, it was William Byron, again, under caution and a frenetic next to last lap. Uh, he gave team owner Rick Hendrick something extra to celebrate. Uh, a lot of people may or may not know that this is the 40th anniversary year for Hendrick Motorsports, so uh, that kind of made it a little extra special to get that win uh, during the first race of their 40th year anniversary. Um, It was a frantic scramble after a restart on lap 197 of 200 in the Daytona 500. Byron reached the finish line, took the white flag just moments before NASCAR called the fifth caution of the evening as Ross Chastain slid wildly through the infield grass off the bumper of Austin Cindric's Ford. So uh, it was a wild finish, and again, just uh, cars crashing everywhere. I think there were a couple of big ones in this race. Um, the win was the first Daytona 500 win for Byron. It was also his second win at Daytona and the 11th of his career. Alex Bowman finished in second, followed by Christopher Bell, Corey LaJoy, Bubba Wallace, A.J. Allmendinger, John Hunter Nemechek, Eric Jones, Noah Gregson, who's back behind the wheel, uh, this time of the number 10 car, uh, and Chase Briscoe in the number 14 car. Uh, the race was pretty calm. Uh, but there was a big wreck uh, in the, within the first six laps of the race. That, car, that wreck involved 23 cars and required a 15-minute red flag in order to get everything cleaned up. Uh, but then the race ended under caution uh, when Byron took the right flag just before the accident involving Ross Chastain and Austin Sendrick. The pole sitter was Joey Logano. He led several times throughout the race. But he was caught up in a big accident with eight laps left. Uh, He ended up finishing 32nd. Uh, Chase Elliott won the first stage. It was his buddy, Ryan Blaney, winning the second stage. 
then, of course, William Byron took that third stage with the win. Uh, there were 41 lead changes among 40, 20 drivers, five cautions, only five cautions, that doesn't sound right, for 18 yellow flag laps. After all the other races we've talked about, that sounds very mild, doesn't it? Uh, it, the average speed. It does. I'll throw this in there real quick, Sharon. It does because it was after stage number two when they talked about it. They had only had three cautions. Two of those were for the stage break cautions. So they had only had one for that early accident. Uh, the other two came there at the end. So, yeah, overall, take away those two. We really only had three cautions for, for the 500 because, again, the stage break ones are mandatory if you're whatever. Don't really count those because they're not for a wreck on the track. Exactly. Um, the average speed of that race was 157.178 miles per hour. Uh, and again, it was run on Monday afternoon because of all the heavy rains uh, that they had Sunday at the track. But those heavy rains are what affected that Xfinity Series race as well. Uh, that Xfinity race was originally scheduled for like 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, and they had to reschedule it. I think it was 11 o'clock Eastern time. They had to reschedule it for after the um, uh, Daytona 500 because there was still a little bit of rain in the area on uh, Monday morning. So uh, kind of a double reschedule for the Xfinity Series and then a big reschedule for the Cup Series because of all those rains. It was. We've got to give a big shout-out to NASCAR with the the scheduling and logistics. I know they went through this out at the Clash in L.A., getting everything in the best they could. You know, they're they're in a rough position. It's not like it's indoors where they can just go power their way through it or other games or certain games you can play in the rain. Racing isn't one of them. Uh, I know with uh, road courses or short tracks, they got the wet weather tire now, and they do the best they can. But this, they did a heck of a job this weekend as well as the partners, the television broadcast, the radio coverage. Mm-hmm. I know they went through a lot of that that goes into that and who all is affected by that. Yeah, and I don't think they left us hanging like they have in the past. I've been at Daytona when we've been there all day long to watch a race under the lights and didn't get home until 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. So I give them credit for that that they made decisions quickly and didn't leave people hanging. And that's one of those through trial and error process, as well as the technology, like when it comes to the weather of trusting that and seeing what's coming, that they can make quicker decisions. So yeah, all in all, what I like is like you say it, it's improvement of better than it was before. Uh, it's still not great. And again, mm-hmm. weather is a, it's a bad position to be in period, obviously. Um, but mm-hmm. to just make the best decision they can as quickly as they can. And that's one of them they talk about when you talk about, say, the Xfinity series moving from the morning. They got to coordinate with them, the television partners, to make sure they can mm-hmm. get it on TV like they were supposed to, things like that, as well as trying to accommodate the fans that are there, as you mentioned. So there's a lot that goes into it. It's not just one person say, okay, let's do it, and then it's done. I think they said it was like exactly two or three right. hours that they're meeting and coordinating, coordinating with all the different partnerships involved. Exactly, and I think uh, I think they did a good job under difficult situations. Uh, now, William Byron's eleventh victory 
uh, came after 217 Cup Series races. Uh, it was his first uh, victory in first top ten, of course, this year. His second victory in fourth top ten in 13 races at Daytona. Alex Bowman posted his sixth top ten finish in 16 races at Daytona. Christopher Bell in third posted his second top ten finish in nine races at Daytona. Zane Smith, who finished 13th, was the highest finishing rookie of the race. That's pretty impressive. William Byron uh, is the 43rd different driver to win the Daytona 500 in the Cup Series and the eighth active driver to win the Daytona 500. So uh, I I like hearing some of these kind of stats. Um, This was a a tie between Hendrick Motorsports now and Petty Enterprises for the most Daytona 500 wins by an organization. They both have nine wins apiece. Uh, Hendrick Motorsports got their nine wins between 1986 and 2024. Uh, Petty Enterprises' nine wins came between 1959 and 1981. Uh, That's pretty cool. Uh, So William Byron is also the sixth Hendrick Motorsports driver to win the Great American uh, uh, Race. Jeff Bodine won with them in 86, Darrell Waltrip in 89. Jeff Gordon has three wins in 05, 99, and 97. Jimmy Johnson uh, won in 06 and 13, Dale Earnhardt in 2014, and, of course, William Byron this year. This is the fourth time that the 24 car has won at Daytona with those three wins by the NASCAR Hall of Famer Jeff Gordon and the one by William Byron. It's also the second straight season that the Daytona 500 has produced 40 or more lead changes. In 23, there were 52 lead changes, and in 21, I'm sorry, 24, this year, there were 41 lead changes. Uh, 20 or more leaders, uh, there were 20, in 23, there were 21 different leaders, and in 24, there were 20 different leaders. So some interesting stats there uh, for the Daytona race. Uh, any thoughts about the top 10 drivers here? Well, I want to continue on with the, just the HMS, Hendrick Motorsports stats. You did. Yes. The, this year was the first time in 10 years that there wasn't, for nine years straight, there was a Hendrick-powered, and I use that word specifically, um, engine on the front row. Ricky Stenhouse, uh, when he picked up the pole, wasn't a Hendrick powered, even though he was driving for JTG Daughter. Mm-hmm. So with that, this was the first year, and I think Alex Bowman personally had, I think it was seven years in a row, or this would have been his seventh, that he would have been on the front row and wasn't. Going back mm-hmm. to that, it had been 10 years since Hendrick had won a Daytona 500, and that was the last time they didn't have somebody on the front row. So we've seen that of the, the Hendrick motor cars coming down there with top speed by themselves for qualifying, but maybe not handling as well in the race. 
and that focus kind of shifted, and they ended up winning it and had a good shot at it because both William Byron and Alex Bowman were your top two, as you mentioned, and then Kyle Larson was also up there in the mix until the end. I'm trying to look where Chase Elliott was as well. Actually, all four of them in the top 15 as Chase Elliott was 14th. So um, great showing there. We talked about it, though, of up until the end, you didn't know. There's a couple drivers in here that were there on that <laughs> last quarter of a lap coming to the white flag. But just the ones as a result, you had Corey LaJoy, uh, huge. We've seen not just for that team, the Spire Motorsports, and again, I'm going to go to the fact of the investment they have made in their program, going to a three-car Cup Series team, the truck series that they've bought now and, and going with. Corey LaJoy kind of been leading that brigade, and especially on these super speedway racing, been a top mm-hmm. contender. We saw that with Michael McDowell, finally got a victory. Corey LaJoy's is coming. Uh, ended up in the yeah. fourth spot. There, there, too, I know he took a little bit of the blame for the incident, but that was only part of it. Um, Bubba Wallace got a top five. Another one we've seen, very good restrictor plate racer, as well as Agent Almendinger. Couple that I really want to hit on Legacy Motorsports, the 42 and 43, John Hunter Nemechek and Eric Jones in seventh and eighth. And then another one that really needed it. You mentioned Noah Gregson in the number 10 coming back to Cup after having vacated from the Legacy Motorsports, but also Chase Briscoe coming home in the 10th place. Yes. You know, uh, that is the first time that Petty Enterprises has had two cars. Um, in the top ten. I know it's Legacy Motor Club, but um, it's the first time they've ever had two top ten finishes in this race. So that was pretty cool. That was an interesting one. I had not heard that one, but um, I know it's been, been a while since they've been com- super competitive anyway, especially having, as you mentioned, two teams. I, I know a lot, for the many years it was Richard Petty by himself. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, you brought up some really interesting stuff there, Jay. Um, there were several accidents, uh, maybe about the same as what we had in the Xfinity series. Uh, Carson Hosett, nobody was out of the race, though, for mechanical issues. So that's kind of, uh, I think, a really relevant point. Uh, Carson Hosevar had an accident with, along with Harrison Burton uh, in that lap six or lap five <laughs> incident. Uh, Kaz Grala, uh all caught up in that uh, and out early. Uh, then it was uh, Todd Gilliland, Daniel Suarez, Brad Keselowski, Joy Logano, Ricky Stenhouse, uh, Ryan Blaney, and Tyler Reddick all caught up in accidents, causing them to end their days a little bit earlier than they had hoped. Uh, but other than that, everybody finished uh, running. Not all of them. Some of them finished laps down. I felt bad for Michael McDowell. Uh, he was doing so good, and then he was just all those laps down it before it was all said and done. Uh, and he knew that there was no chance of him getting back uh, into contention. But he had a good car. He was so happy. He's, he had a fast car, and he knew it. Uh, but it was a shame that... Uh, he ended up multiple laps down. 
Well, if we want to go down a, a list of ones you feel bad for, let's start at the bottom. Carson Hosevar, <laughs> rookie, didn't get a lot of experience. Harrison Burton, I thought, had a great uh, number 21, yeah. Wood Brothers Ford, especially after the duels. Michael McDowell, I'm on the other side of that one, front row motorsports of Todd Gillen was up front and hanging with the big boys, if you will. And I know news came out this week that they've extended their partnership with Ford as well as increased their alliance with Penske, if I'm I'm not mistaken. Keep an eye out for Front Row Motorsports this year. And I haven't bailed on him yet. Todd Gilland is one of those. I think we have yet to see him have his breakout year and show his true talent to come through. Yeah, I think he's maturing, and that's a good thing. Uh, I think we are going to see good things from him for sure. But before we run out of time, let's make sure we cover the points. All right, let me swap over to that page. Now, this one, again, will be fairly close to that finishing order as most of these drivers were up there throughout the day. And I'm trying to stall as I'm speaking because that load, there we go, page loaded. So your top looks like three anyway are the same, parallel the finishing order. William Byron, your points leader at 54 points, four over Alex Bowman. Christopher Bell is six back from that at 44. Then it gets mixed up a little. Chase Elliott, one of those that got some stage points in fourth. Then you go to Bubba Wallace, John Hunter Nemechek. I mentioned Kyle Larson. He was up there until the very end, so his stage points to seventh. Kyle Busch, we didn't mention finishing in the top ten, but is eighth in points. Eric Jones, Corey LaJoy, talked about the fourth-place finish, but not throughout the day, so is back in tenth. Austin Sindrick, 11th. Denny Hamlin, 12th. And here on the cup side, we've got to look at the top 16. Uh, Chase Briscoe, mm-hmm. Zane Smith, your rookie for Spire Motorsports, Noah Gregson, and then Martin Truex Jr. Um, in 16th. But again, it's real yeah, early, so this will this will change up a lot. Yeah, it will, and and there's some three-way ties in here too. You mentioned Martin Truex in 16th, but he's actually tied with Ross Chastain and Tyler Reddick. That's a three-way tie for that 16th place spot. Uh, then for his place, uh, there's a tie between Corey LaJoy and Austin Sendrick for that spot. And going a little bit further up, another three-way tie for sixth place with John Hunter Nemechek, Kyle Larson, and Kyle Busch. So this is pretty tight in here uh, between these drivers. And, again, uh, it just shows how important those points are uh, when you've got three-way ties going on within the top 16 drivers. I know there are still some fans out there uh, who don't like the stage breaks. And I understand that, but stage racing, especially given the points, you know, whether or not they bring out the caution, I can understand that debate, but they've tried to go away from that with the road courses uh, year before last. Didn't seem to go over well. I can't even fathom not having it now because it, it makes it that much more important than not riding around until the very end. You know, you've got to go. And we've seen that, and we see how some of these drivers are where they finish isn't or where they ended up finishing, but yet then in the overall points they aren't up there. Especially when you talk about the you know one's battling for the championship all year in one race they run up front you know so just throwing an odd number or a 
irrational number out there, but leading 199 laps, breaking on the last lap, it's not a DNF for the day because they got those stage points. Helps recover, so it's not as bad when you talk about a top-running team all day and then has something happen in the last, say, five, five laps or so that it completely ruins their day. I think it is a huge, huge change to racing. And really, I, I kind of like to see it kind of at dirt tracks, too, of maybe doing something like that of points throughout the race just for that reason. But there again, dirt track, you got more shorter races, so. Yeah. I like the stage racing. I, I remember the days where you had people just sitting around the back all day until the very end. Uh, and now you've got people racing for those points and those points are important. So I think it, I think stage racing was a good move by NASCAR personally. Uh, we're coming up at the top of the hour. So we're ready to transition over to the hot topics and, uh, we've got a lot of catching up to do with the uh, off-season, and since we weren't doing the radio show during that time, uh, I know we've hit on some really relevant ones on Thursday night, and I'm sure we'll do that again tonight. Um, We only have one of our, uh, I started to say drivers. He is a driver, um, but we only have one of our fan for racing crew here so far, and that's Mike Rozell. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, uh, driver is definitely generous. Um, vehicle operator, <laughs> uh, cone, uh, cone assassin. I don't know, uh, but I do appreciate your <laughs> generosity in describing me as such. Uh, I know Jay has many, uh, many less generous terms he uses to describe me. I'm sure we'll get to some of those later. Hey, uh, you who- use the term cone assassinator. <laughs> I am going to wear that one out. I like that one. That's. <laughs> Oh, you guys make me laugh. Uh, Yeah, I believe we have uh, Tommy is supposed to be joining us tonight. I know Andy said he's going to be a little bit late tonight. Uh, And there's Tommy now. Oh, no, maybe that's – I'm not sure. Is this Tommy or Andy? This is Tommy. Okay, I had a feeling it was Tommy. Okay, so welcome to the show, Tommy. It's good to have you here. We've got Mike and Jay and myself, and uh, we're going to get started with some hot topics here. I know Andy is going to be joining us later, so uh, let's go ahead and see what we got. Tommy, why don't you kick us off tonight? Should we just go with uh, the Daytona 500? Okay. That's a good way to put it. Mike, what are your thoughts about the Daytona 500? I mean, that's a pretty broad topic right there, isn't it? I mean, we've got a couple split-out topics to discuss here, probably independently. Uh, but overall, a great race. Probably the best Daytona 500 we've had in, in quite some time, uh, albeit the rain delay kind of put a damper on things. But then again, if you look, look in the stands, there were, I don't know that it was everybody who had a ticket to the race, but they, they were packed there yesterday, even though it was a full 24 hours and some change after the originally scheduled start time. A lot of fans stuck around, and they were treated to a really, really great Daytona 500. Um, very competitive race. Uh, a lot of um, uncertainty as to how the outcome was going to come on that. And uh, pretty, some pretty good stories there. Definitely some controversy. The thing I like the most about it, and Mike Joy alluded to it a little bit in the broadcast, 
William Byron, whether you like him or not, the thing I like about William Byron winning this race is no disrespect to guys like Austin Sindrick, Ricky Stenhouse, Michael McDowell, but it really feels like we're, we have a much more relevant winner of the Daytona 500 this year. If you look at previous years, we've had these one-off winners, and they go on to struggle to even stay in the top 20 in points. They're never in contention for the rest of the year. They make the playoffs, and they almost always exit in the first round without even having a chance of advancing. Their performance is that they're not even on the cusp of advancement. They're eliminated in the first round, and you see your Daytona 500 champion be irrelevant throughout the remainder of the season and not in contention to win the championship. Barring something unforeseen, I fully expect William Byron to be in the championship discussion for the entire season this year, and he's going to have that opportunity to, to chart, start his championship run with the Daytona 500 win. So really good to see there. And I think uh, Byron's going to capitalize on that right out of the gate. He's, uh, he's, he's poised to pick up right where he left off last year. Oh, okay. Jay, what are your thoughts? I think I got to evaluate myself as I got to start out by agreeing with Mike to a certain level. (laughs) Uh, You got a very valid point of a championship contender winning the 500, which, yeah, I mean, I know Michael McDowell had a better season than we've seen in years past, the year he won it. Ricky Stenhouse, you can look at his stats for that team. Certainly we're improved. I don't remember how far into the playoffs he went. But on the other hand, I kind of like that. And I referred to it earlier in the show as an opportunity race. I kind of like that. That's where you see drivers that maybe normally don't have a shot at winning a race get that opportunity and be able to celebrate it. However, it does then, as Mike put it, put a driver into the the playoffs that you really don't expect to be a championship contender put them on the list of the first four out when we narrow from 16 down to 12. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's debatable. So, but he's right. As far as seeing a championship contender win the Daytona 500, it really has. We expected it with Austin Sindrick, honestly, and it just never materialized. So there's two sides to that, but I would have to agree that, that William Byron is going to obviously be a championship contender almost can pencil him in for a championship four contender with the way he's run the past couple seasons. So there were some great storylines that Sharon, when we were talking about it in the Xfinity series race, uh, actually, no, it was the cup race with the good stories. There's the heartbreak. There were some ones that felt should have a shot at it. Different things happened um, and ended up not finishing. All I can say is it's super speedway racing. And I don't know if Sharon has a, PayPal account if I got to take a fine for this I think Joey Logano had the quote of the weekend uh, maybe when it comes to overall super speedway racing he said super speedway racing is great and fun until it sucks (laughs) you know it depends on where you end up finishing (laughs) yeah that is the truth you know what comes to my mind is uh, uh, the tagline that ABC had years ago the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat uh, that's what the Daytona 500 is. I didn't mean to cut in, but that's what that just reminded me of. No, that was what I had for this first round. Okay. Yeah. It, Daytona 500 is the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Uh, I thought I, I'm going to do the shout out for NASCAR because uh, they, 
never like to really delay races uh, and postpone them. I've been at Daytona, and I talked about this earlier, where we hung around hours and whole days before they finally get the race in, and I, they, I, we stay for the whole race, and I'm going home at uh, three o'clock in the morning. So I give them a lot of kudos for not making everybody hang around and wait. They made decisions based on what the all the information that they had, and I think they made the right decisions about delaying these races. Uh, it allowed people to go on about their business and plan for those races on Sunday. You said something about the stands, and I was kind of impressed with the fact that um, uh, they moved that Xfinity race from 10 o'clock in the morning until after the uh, uh, Daytona race. And I think that might have benefited them to a certain degree. I know people still had to go to work the next day. Uh, but I ended up staying up for it, and and uh, I think a lot of people did. Uh, a lot of people would have missed it if it was at 10 o'clock in the, in the uh, day, and they wouldn't have been able to watch that race. So I think you got more viewership uh, by having that race after the Daytona 500. And I think it was a good decision by NASCAR to do that. Um, some people might disagree with me, but I thought they did a good job from that front. Um, it's always disappointing when you get the biggest race of the year, the first race, uh, the Super Bowl of NASCAR, and you've got to delay things because of rain. Uh, but I think they made the best of it, and they, they did a good job. As far as the race itself, um, it's, it's super speedway racing. It's not my favorite kind of racing, uh, but uh, it is what it is. And Jay and I talked about it earlier. A lot of things happen within split seconds, and uh, as fans, I think we're a little bit hard on people sometimes, uh, hard on the drivers sometimes, without really understanding that these guys don't really have uh, the same visibility that we have from the outside looking in. Uh, and so I, I talked about this earlier. There was an interview with uh, Alex Bowman <clears throat> where he talked about uh, him not really knowing what was going on and how things can happen, uh, Jay brought this up, how things can happen not in the immediate area around you, but it's the what's happening behind you. Uh, when somebody slows up, you've got an accordion effect with everybody else having to slow up behind you, and sometimes they can't slow up that fast, and that's how you end up with these big wrecks at, at tracks like Daytona. Um, so uh, I think that we saw a couple of big ones, uh, and I know that's what Daytona is known for, are the big ones. I think we got uh, more than one this year. Uh, and it happened in both the Xfinity race and the Cup race. Um, Xfinity, I think they made it to six laps before the first big wreck. And in the Cup race, it was lap five that they had the first big wreck. Um, but... I think overall, I think um, it's what we expect to happen with super speedway racing is exactly what we saw happen. And again, I'll, I'll end it the way I started it. It's the agony. It's the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. And unfortunately, only one person can be the victor. Uh, and the rest of us, uh, the rest of those drivers are, are looking at defeat when it comes to the Daytona 500. 
Tommy, I'm curious to know your thoughts. It's awesome to see that 24 car winning the Daytona 500 again. <laughs> um, the agony of the thrill of victory, right? Yes, ma'am. I got to start putting money down. I feel like I had a good year last year picking winners, and um, to start off the season, Byron won. I mean, honestly, I thought it was a great race. I mean, they did have the wreck at the beginning. It was six laps into it, so I got kind of nervous. I was like, man, this is going to be just like the truck race. But um, they got that wreck out of the way early, and then they held it together until the end for the big one. And um, Logano's upset that uh, Byron got into him. But, I mean, Bowman got Byron loose, got Brad Kay, and then Brad Kay got Logano. I just love Logano always. If he wrecks you, it's fine. But if he gets wrecked, oh, you're going to hear about how you shouldn't be driving an ass car. <laughs> I, it's, just, it's crazy. He can dish it, but he sure can't take it. And, I, you know, I'm glad Byron won the 500 and Logano wrecked out. Um, I am still still haven't forgiven him for what he did in Darlington because Byron had that throwback Jeff Gordon flame paint scheme, and he was about to win that thing until Joey took it from him. So I still haven't forgiven him. But um, <laughs> great race. Compared to the Xfinity race and truck race, in my opinion, it, it, was, uh, it was just awesome. They – only had two or three wrecks. It wasn't a clown fest. We didn't see a car flip, which is a good thing. I mean, you know, maybe it would have been a little bit more exciting, but it was still a great race, and nobody got hurt. And I can't believe there wasn't a flip. We saw one in the truck race. Didn't see one in the Xfinity race. Um, I, just just great. And it's awesome to see that 24 car back in victory lane. I was looking for Jeff Gordon the whole time. I finally – saw him there towards the end of the celebration before it uh, cut to whatever it was about to go to after that. Um, and I think it was, what, 40, 40 years for Hendrick or 45 years or something like that. So they got to win on their anniversary. Like I said, I, I got to start putting money down. <laughs> okay, Mike, your thoughts. Follow. I just – yeah, I just realized I had actually posted the, the Lugano discussion in our race day chat thread out there. Um, and, yeah, Tommy, Tommy brought it up, so I guess we could talk about that as well, because that was um, a, a pretty interesting comment from Logano complaining about he, – he described him as the guys who start the wreck and survive. Well, you know, the, I, I, don't, I don't know who originally coined the phrase, but, you know, sometimes you're the windshield and sometimes you're the bug. And Joey's been the windshield plenty of times, and last night he was finally the bug, and – I guess it kind of sucks when it gets to that point for him, but he really, he doesn't have a whole lot of ground to stand on there because he's been the the beneficiary of things that he started and got away with on several different occasions there. So uh, don't count me as very sympathetic to Joey Logano in that standpoint. He's right. I mean, he didn't call direct that eventually took him out, but he's, he's ruined a lot of other guys days on on multiple occasions and multiple different races. So, um, Forgive me for not shedding any tears for uh, for Joseph Logano on that one there at all. Um, yeah, <laughs> and that's, that's just an atheist. That's right. If I knew his middle name, I'd, I'd go full mother on it, but I got nothing for you there. I'm sure I could Google it, but then <laughs> then I would be giving Joey too much time of mine. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's speedway racing, like you said. Uh, 
it's unpredict, chaotic, and, and sometimes it's a good thing, sometimes it's a bad thing. With Atlanta coming up this weekend, I think we are we're certainly at critical mass for this type of racing. Uh, with the two Daytona races, two Talladega races, and now two Atlanta races, all that similar drafting, um, formerly restrictor plate, but now they just have a smaller tapered spacer. So don't call it a restrictor plate, even though it's restricting the airflow of the engines. We, we, know, we know the kind of racing that we're talking about here. And we're definitely at critical mass on that. And it, it really does verge on sports entertainment in that it's, it, yes, it definitely takes skill to win one of these races. But at the same time, I feel like luck plays a bigger role in this style of racing than it does maybe in other types of racing that we do within NASCAR. So um, it is what it is. It's, it's certainly entertaining. I was entertained as a race fan. I think the, the 120,000 or whatever people that stuck around Daytona last night, kudos to them for sticking it out. Uh, I think they were entertained mm-hmm. as well. And I, I do want to echo you, Sharon. Uh, I, I, a big tip of the hat for NASCAR pulling the plug early on both the Xfinity race as well as the Cup race. Um, I'm, I'm with you. It's, there's nothing more frustrating than sitting there playing the white, we might get a window game, and all you're doing is watching the jet dryers drive around in the rain and watching rain fill on the, the broadcast, wondering when it's going to start and knowing that it's never going to start. And you just really wish that they would just make the call that you know that they know that needs to get done, but they're reluctant to do so. So I'm really glad that they actually did it early this time and gave people, basically gave them their Saturday and Sunday back saying, this is not going to happen. Go do what you're going to do. We'll see you on Monday. And they, they did. They saw us on Monday and they gave us a great show. So kudos to NASCAR for doing that one. Okay, Jay. Well, I really wasn't going to get into the whole Joey Logano versus the world, I guess. (laughs) To me, it still goes back to those super speedway racing. I mean, when was the last time we saw a super speedway race winner outright win the race without a little bit of that bumping and shoving that they got away with or got through, again, call it the luck, but there's some some skill involved. Um, And I'm not trying to defend one or the other. I just got to go with it, super speedway racing. Everybody's done it. Everybody's been on the receiving end of it. So, um, ironically, Mike, if if memory serves me correctly, the whole sometimes you're the bug, sometimes you're the windshield came from Matt Kenseth when him and Joe Logano were getting into it, and Kenseth ended it <laughs> at uh, Martinsville. Uh, that's the one. That's the one that sticks in my mind anyway. Of that being said, the one thing I look at, just looking at the top ten. Um, for a wrap-up for me is I know that Daytona is Daytona and is a separate entity, but some good feeling, at least for this race, Corey LaJoy yet again with Spire Motorsports, the two legacy motorsports teams getting top tens, and then Stuart Haas racing um, in ninth and tenth. And I know that's not indicative of how their whole season's going to go, how the Fords are going to handle the rest of all the tracks, but at least for the moment, those are good feelings for those top 10. And then the last uh, thing I want to say is uh, talking about giving shout outs and people sticking around. I don't know if people really understand how busy Dwayne the Rock Johnson is, but they made a point of uh, pointing it out that he hung around to do the Grand Marshal duties. And I know he's got the UFL is starting up, his Hollywood activities, the WWE is involved in again now. So kudos to him for hanging around and giving one of the best um, starts to a Daytona 500. 
Absolutely. That was all really good stuff. I want to also add on to what you guys were saying about William Byron, because uh, Jeff Gordon today was uh, talking about it a little bit. I don't know if it was today or yesterday, but one of the things he said is that William Byron should get some respect. Last year, he he won those six races last year. He won the Daytona 500 now. He's a Daytona 500 champion. Uh, but he said what he really appreciates about William Byron is he's made that number 24 his own number. It's not that other guy that's in the number 24 anymore. And uh, I think he's right. I think that William Byron has established himself. He, does, he has not taken the traditional path. Uh, to success that uh, some of these other drivers have. He didn't start when he was a young kid. He started when he was in high school, and he started with sim racing and then came into NAS, into, well, I think he started with the K&N Pro Series or the Arkham Menard Series and then came up through the ranks uh, with the trucks and Xfinity and then into the Cup Series. And he's found success with it. So, uh, I think that says a lot for William Byron, uh, not doing it traditionally where you grow up in, in racing. Nobody in his family ever raced before. He was the first first one in his family to race, and he had a family that was able to support him in, in this dream. And uh, to see that happen, I think, is really fantastic. And to see that he did it in a very non-traditional kind of way, I, I think, makes it even more fantastic. He's a success story. He he is due his uh, accolades uh, for winning the Daytona 500. And uh, to add on what you're saying, I think he is going to kind of break the trend. Sometimes, uh, I know years ago, they said, if you win the Daytona 500, you probably won't have a very good year uh, afterwards. There's kind of a little thing about that. But I do think that we're going to see that trend broken with William Byron. I think he's going to continue to have a good year, and uh, I think this is just the beginning. I think it's a little bit of a sting for him from last year, winning those six races and not winning the championship. So I think he's going to go after it this year, and I think this is just the beginning of that. Tommy, you get the final word. Yeah, I'll just add that um, it was awesome seeing the rock there and the flyover. It was more of a, more than a flyover, like it was kind of a show. And I, I actually have to agree with y'all. I could not believe how many people were there for a Monday, which it was President's Day, so – I feel like there were some people off since it was a federal holiday, but for the point. amount of people that were for the amount of people that were there, though, it, it was definitely a lot of people that called out. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think you couldn't have had a better 500. I mean, mainly for me, because Byron won 24 car back in victory lane, and yeah, I think that, like you said, most people win the 500. They're not really relevant anymore that year um i think that that's going to change this year i think that uh byron and um larson are probably the top two at hendrick now and then probably chase and then bowman uh but i I love seeing that 24 car win um now if we could just get a rainbow car or 
Jeff's flames back on the car for Darlington. We'll be all set. All right. Okay, let's move on to our next topic. Uh, Mike, you start us off. Sure. This is uh, still in the Daytona 500, of course. But uh, Eric Jones, Denny Hamlin, and several other drivers have expressed some frustration with the fuel saving that was going on during last night's race. Uh, During the middle part of the race especially, we saw the entire pack running at maybe two-thirds throttle, and it resulted in a pace of about 170-mile-an-hour lap times, which is about 20 miles an hour slower than the full-speed race pace, which is somewhere in the low 190s. These drivers were were saying it was taking away from the racing and really draining the excitement out of it, and I'm kind of wondering what everyone's thoughts on it. Did we feel like that took away from the race last night? Okay, Jay, you get to start us off with your comments. I'm not saying that there isn't a valid point in all that, but it's what you got to deal with. I, to me, it almost seems like I'm not the one that won, so I got to complain about something. You know, they always say that when when you have a race, you got one one happy person and 39 unhappy if you got a 40 car field. So. And sometimes the race winner isn't even happy with the amount of money they did or whatever else. And I'll come back to that when I bring up my hot topic. But it, it, to me, it just seems like it's one of those of it didn't play in their favor, so they're against it. You, know, you mentioned Joey Logano. If he's on one end of it, he's unhappy. If he's on the other, it's, oh, it's part of racing. I, I, they have control, too, because they can go out there and they can lead the pack and pull away if those guys are going to run half throttle or whatever pull away and put them a lap down or whatever and then it doesn't matter so I think some of that is to me just a little bit of I didn't finish where I wanted to okay Tommy yeah I didn't I didn't see an issue with the fuel strategy last night and then in my opinion I mean um I do remember like some people had they went on pit road and they didn't get their cars filled up, so they had to come back for an additional stop. I mean, that's on your pit crew. Um, I don't get the gripe at all. I mean, he still got a top ten finish. Eric Jones did. I mean, <laughs> like Jay just said, uh, just sour grapes because they didn't win. But um, I mean, I didn't see a problem with the fuel strategy last night. I must have missed something. I think that they're just. Uh, griping because they didn't didn't win okay hold on okay i hope you haven't been waiting too long andy <laughs> uh no i actually just called in hey sorry for the delay but uh yeah glad to be on tonight okay we're talking about the fuel strategy some of the drivers not happy with the full uh being told that they needed to save fuel uh, and not being able to race. Uh, what were your thoughts as a viewer about the fuel strategy? It's just part of racing. The only reason you're upset about it is because you didn't win. So, um, I mean, fuel mileage and fuel strategy has been a part of racing for a very long time. Uh, the engineers and the crew chiefs obviously formulated a plan um, that got executed by the drivers and yeah, maybe it's not necessarily fun, but being able to stretch your your uh, your number of laps that you can run more so than the other competitors, you know, helps out in the long run. So, you know, sometimes racing may not necessarily be fun, but you have to do what's best for 
the strategy of, of the overall outcome, you know, and I think that obviously um, it's just part of it. So I don't know. I, I think that these guys need to, you know, look at what they make for salaries and, and look at where there are, you know, where they are in the sport and not complain so much. And a lot of whining from some of these guys. Sometimes they just got to shut up. <laughs> okay. Um, I guess I, I can see both sides of this. I, and and that's kind of unusual for me, I guess, because I I don't usually agree with Denny Hamlin. I know Denny Hamlin's big thing was that I did hear his interview, his uh, conversation about this, and he was like, I wanted to get out there and race. I wanted to go after it. I wanted to be out there. And honestly, from a fan's perspective, I don't like it when drivers hang in the back and come show up at the end. I, I want them out there going full throttle all the time and we're trying to be up in the front and racing for the win. Um, <clears throat> so I can see that perspective. Uh, but Andy's right, and, and so is Tommy and Jay. Uh, fuel strategy has been part of the part of the uh, racing game for a long, long time. Uh, it's not the first time uh, I think that these guys have been asked to save fuel. And so for them to say that is kind of a little bit of a head scratcher at the same time because um, you've been asked to save fuel before and it wasn't a big deal. So why why is it a big deal now? Um, So, yeah, I can see both sides of this one. I don't like the hanging back. I don't, uh, uh, and I know that's all part of the strategy. Uh, but I feel like you're you're denying your fans a chance to watch you get out there and race and to go after it, like like Denny Hamlin says. Um, and when you just hang out in the back of the pack and you're not out there racing, uh, they paid a lot of money to see you just hang out in the back of the pack. You need to be out there racing. Uh, so I see both sides of it. Mike, what are your thoughts? Uh, I think it's that time. Oh, I gotta say something real quick. We're we're coming up at the time of the t- uh, show that we're going to go off the air in just a couple of minutes, uh, night at ten thirty p.m. Eastern time. Uh, and when we go off the air, we're going to be go- t- still talking, and your heroes go off mid sentence. Uh, just know that if you're listening for the first time, that we do record the rest of the conversation. And it becomes part of our uh, bonus overtime material on our podcast. So uh, if you want to hear the rest of the conversation, all you have to do is go to the player that we have up at com and just fast forward to the two-hour mark when we're finished here. And I'll go out on Twitter and Facebook and let you know when that happens. Uh, just fast forward to the two-hour mark, and you can hear the rest of the conversation, uh, whether it's, you can do that at your convenience. So uh, that's kind of a cool part of that. So with uh, that, Mike, uh, go ahead and give us your comments. Well, first, I want to start off by dispelling a kind of a misnomer here. People talk about, oh, well, fuel mileage racing isn't racing. It is absolutely racing. It may not be the most exciting. It may not be side-by-side, hard-nosed, pack racing, like maybe what you would want to see, but it is every bit as much racing as, you know, putting putting the pedal on the floor and driving the car as hard as you possibly can. What are they out there trying to do? They're trying to win the race. And in order to do that, you need to have the correct strategy 
we see the fastest car win the race sometimes, but for every time that the fastest car wins the race, I'd be willing to bet there are as many or more times that the car with the best strategy ended up winning the race at the end of the day. You still need to have a fast mm-hmm. competitive car to be competitive, mind you, but a fast car is nothing if you don't have the correct strategy to make sure you're there at the end in the position to win the race. So to try and categorize fuel mileage as, as not racing is just incorrect. With that said, I don't have a lot of sympathy for the drivers who want to complain about the nature of the race last night where there was a lot of fuel saving. If nothing else, we have enough drivers who seem to be complaining about it. Where were they last night? They have something underneath their right foot where they are completely in control of whether or not they're lifting to save fuel. If they don't like it, it's in their control. They can push that pedal a little bit harder. They can run that car further. And it sounds like they had enough people there who were also frustrated with the fuel mileage savings. Get on the radio. Talk to your spotter. Hey, I want to go. Do we have anybody else who wants to go? And it sounds like they probably would have had half a dozen to 10 or more takers who would have wanted to go all out and race as hard as they can and forget about fuel mileage. And as a race fan, I think that would have been a really, really interesting thing to see. Because on one hand, you would have the group of of teams that are trying to lift and run at 70% or wherever they were and save as much fuel as possible. And they would be racing against a completely separate mentality and strategy where these guys are trying to go all out, running probably 20 to 30 miles an hour faster than the fuel savers. And you have a, now you have a game of this track position that you gain by running faster. Does that overcome the benefits of potentially stopping fewer times in order to save fuel? I would find that to be an extremely interesting race to watch, and I would like to see it play out. Unfortunately, we got through the pack, monkey see, monkey do racing, where one guy or a, a collection of a few guys make the decision of this is what we're going to do. And every other monkey sees and every other monkey does. And nobody comes up with their own strategy because they feel like they don't want to gamble and lose on this one, but you could gamble and win as well. Maybe if you do have enough takers on that all out strategy, run as fast as you can, you may be the, the, the smart move there. And you have the, the guys who ran the fuel mileage race and they end up coming up short because They just simply did not gain the track position necessary to put themselves in the position to win the race at lap 200 or wherever the Daytona 500 plus ends on on a year-to-year basis. Believe it or not, we have not had a green flag finish of the Daytona 500 at the scheduled lap 200 conclusion since Kurt Busch won the race in 2017. Just a fun fact from an aside there that I pulled off of a Twitter post. But that's my my rant on that one. Okay, Jay. Yeah, from a race fan standpoint of it, I really didn't see it impact the enjoyment of the race. Uh, When we talk about overall, I know Michigan is one of them where there we get into, that is a fuel mileage track where a lot of times it does come down to fuel mileage. Road courses, very specifically, that one may plan their entire strategy around fuel mileage, banking on cautions. I didn't see it impact it to that great degree. And Mike brought up a point of once one team does it, it's monkey see, monkey do. Am I a big fan of it? When we talk about uh, true fuel mileage races, no. Seeing it go that way once in a while, yeah, to see the different strategies and who can play it best is interesting. I don't want to see it every race, though. But there again, it doesn't happen every race. I really didn't see the impact, major impact of it, 
in the Daytona 500. I know there were some teams of, even if it is that one more lap or two more laps where they're spending tenths of a second less on pit road. But like Mike said, then you choose to stay out, run your strategy and beat them at it. I, that's all I can say as far as it comes to that. And to make a comparison to, to another sport, when it comes to football, I am a so hate the kneel down when you're just running out the clock that you can kneel down or even just hand the ball off and not even really try to gain yards just to burn up the clock. But there's nothing you can do about it. It's part of the strategy until they outlaw it or, you know, don't allow it. So I, and I really, like I said, as a fan, didn't think it was a major player as we've seen in, and I use Michigan because I know that is a track where it really does always come down to fuel mileage. It's that race or, you know, that's the way that race is going to play out. Mm-hmm. You've got to deal with it. Tommy? I don't really have much to add. I don't think it affected the race. I just think it's some salty drivers. Andy? I think, you know, one of the things to add, too, is, you know, for the drivers to complain about it after the fact is is a bit surprising. You know, typically you would have a meeting with your team and your teammates ahead of time, and you would know what the strategy is and you would know what the game plan is. So, you know, to have it not even be said prior to the race and then become this complaint after the fact um, is, is kind of perplexing to me because supposedly you would know all about this ahead of time, and I didn't hear anything mentioned about it, you know, which makes sense because you're not going to divulge strategy prior to the race, but to have it be a complaint after the fact is a little weird just because, this is all something that would have been discussed and planned ahead of time. And this isn't the first time at a super speedway race that we've seen teams, you know, purposely save fuel and run 70% or whatever throttle to try to save fuel to maximize laps on the track. Um, this, this is not a new concept. This isn't a new thing. So I, like, I, like I think we've all said, really, it's just a matter of whining and complaining because you didn't win the race. If Eric Jones won the race, he wouldn't be complaining about it. So it's just, Typical drivers never have anything, you know, never have anything positive to say if they don't win, it seems like. And it's just it's just one of those situations that it's nothing new. We'll see it again, and it's just part of racing. Yeah, I agree with you guys. It is. It's nothing new. This is what we've done forever. Okay. You know the word that kind of comes to my mind and kind of uh, gets me is – Everybody complains about NASCAR coming up with these gimmicks. Um, But, Andy, you read my mind with your comments because that's exactly what I was thinking. Why are you talking about it on the radio show or in an interview or anything else uh, when uh, it gets everybody talking? If that was your goal, you accomplished your goal with that. Uh, But to me, that's what makes it appear to be a gimmick. Uh, it gets everybody talking. You should be talking to your team. You should have known what the strategy was going to be. You should have, you know, there's a lot of should-haves in there. Um, so why bring it up at this point? I agree with you, Andy. It's it's a little perplexing, uh, and I think all of us have kind of said that, why you would even say those things other than to get everybody talking. Um so drivers are as guilty as anybody 
uh, I think, of doing that. And we've seen a lot of drivers that have done that over the years, too. Uh, get the conversation going, keep myself relevant, and that's what I think Denny Hamlin does a lot, uh, is he wants to keep himself relevant, so he brings up something. And I know it's not just him, but he tries to bring up things that keep people talking and keep himself relevant. It's a gimmick. <laughs> um, but uh, I do agree. Yeah, it would be much more fun to watch it if they allowed it to play out and there was conversation and and uh, they they approached it from a different perspective. It would make it a lot more interesting racing uh, rather than more interesting conversation. Mike? Well, we've got Atlanta coming up this weekend, which, yes, it's a 1.5-mile track, but it still races probably more similarly to Daytona than it does to any of the other uh, 1.5 miles on the, on the series. Uh, so just this next weekend, we're going to see whether these guys put their money where their mouth is and their right foot where the gas pedal is. And if they decide they want to actually burn the gas and, and, and run the car as, as fast as it can go, or if it is all just running the lift and they want to – make sound bites, make Twitter interviews, or, or what, how, you know, however you want to categorize it. If we get to Atlanta this coming weekend or Talladega coming up on the horizon in April, and there's still everyone, all 40 cars on the track are still running at three-quarter throttle saving fuel, well, it just shows how empty and hollow some of these comments last night were and how little stock we should take in it. Now, played out, and some of these guys, Denny Hamlin, Eric Jones, by the way, are Toyota teammates. If the Toyotas get together and decide – we're not doing the fuel strategy game. We're going all out. I would actually respect them a lot for it because you mm-hmm. identified something that you didn't like the way it went in the Daytona 500. You come up with a different strategy, and you're going to execute it and try something different. The Toyotas didn't win last night. They were certainly competitive. Uh, they were much more competitive in the duels, but the Toyotas were still competitive last night in the Daytona 500, but they, did, they came up short. So if Toyota decides as a collective organization – we are going to utilize the right foot, and we are going to try and put, put bus lights on the field, and they can save as much gas as they want, but we're going to beat them with raw speed. I would like to see that, and I really hope that they do come up with that. If they do have drivers like Danny Hamlin and Eric Jones who are genuinely frustrated and genuinely want to approach the race with a different strategy, let's do it. Put on a show, boys. Show us how raw speed wins races over fuel savings and make your point heard on the racetrack as opposed to just on various blogs, uh, uh, podcasts, or Twitter interviews, or, or wherever else that doesn't involve driving the race car. Because at the end of the day, what you say there doesn't matter. It's what you do in the race car that matters. All right. Uh, where are we at? Okay, I think we got time for another one, Jay. You got a hot topic for us? I do, and I'm not sure if 19 minutes will be able to cover it. We talked about a lot of good things, that race season underway, some good racing, and along with some other things. And I'm normally not the one to be the doomsdayer and bring up negative things, but this one really got to me, and that is that the team owners uh, didn't refer to the RTA specifically, but it just says team owners hire an antitrust lawyer when it comes to the charter system, renewing that, and the portion of the TV, TV revenue that the teams themselves are going to get versus the percentage the track gets in NASCAR. All right. Tommy? 
So I did see this. Um, I didn't really read that much into it, so I'm sure Jay and Mike are going to have, and, and you're going to have a lot more knowledge on this than me. But uh, definitely not a good sign to see them hiring a, uh, a lawyer uh, in regards to this. I do know that uh, NASCAR is still family-owned by Brian France, I believe, so they're not public. Um and uh, I know that they've been working on this TV deal and the charter system and all that stuff uh, with the team owners and that it's been an ongoing process for like at least the last few years. So getting a lawyer involved is definitely not a good sign, but, um, you know, maybe this gets some things done and hopefully in a good way and not a bad way. Um, but, you know, like I said, I'd, I saw it briefly. I didn't really read into it, but, you know, saw that the lawyer was involved. and like, man, that's not good. But, um, you know, we'll have to see what happens there. I mean, if it's if they're doing legal stuff like that, it's going to take some time to pan some stuff out. So um, I'll let y'all go ahead and discuss this one, and maybe I'll have stuff to add the second time I go around. Okay. Andy, what are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I, I'm with Tommy. I don't have a ton of knowledge to really speak too much on this one, but the fact that there's an antitrust lawyer tells me that negotiations aren't as far along as, as they would hope they would be, especially because um, NASCAR was on one of the broadcasts this past weekend saying that everything seemed to be fine and that things were progressing in a positive manner, um, which was encouraging to hear. And then, you know, in, in the same breath, only a, a day or so later, you hear that, you know, a lawyer has been hired, which tends to indicate that teams aren't happy with the current stance. So to me, you know, that kind of means that, you know, things aren't warm and fuzzy right now. And um, it means that there's a lot to be ironed out. I think that there will be an agreement made at some point. I feel like there has to be, but it seems like we're far from that right now. Mike? Well, this is not just some schlub of a lawyer that they hired. Uh, they've hired Jeffrey Kessler, who's the partner and co-executive chair of the Winston & Strong LLP law firm. And if you're not familiar with them, I don't blame you, but I can almost guarantee you are familiar with what they've done. This is the same law firm that took on the NCAA, and it resulted in college athletes being paid a stipend for their performance on the field during college athletic games. They also represented the women's national soccer team and their, uh, their fight against the U.S. Soccer Association regarding the pay there. So this is a pretty serious firm that the, that the team owners have hired in order to further their negotiations here. And I kind of see it both ways, right? Obviously, the, the teams are all saying, well, we're broke. We got nothing. Jeff Gordon was just on the Dale Jr. download, I want to say, less than two weeks ago. And he reiterated again about how Hendrick Motorsports isn't profitable. They haven't turned a profit in 10 years. We've heard similar comments from the likes of Joe Gibbs Racing, 311, and other teams where they're just not making any money. They need NASCAR to pay up more, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. On the other side of that coin, though, that is self-induced. Nobody is obligating these teams to spend the amount of money that they're spending. I would imagine that the operating budget of a team like Hendricks Motorsports or Joe Gibbs Racing is in excess of $100 million every single year. And that's from combined sources, whether it comes from NASCAR revenue sharing, sponsorship, B2B deals, et cetera, these teams are spending probably $100 million or more on their operations every year. That's not a revenue problem. That's a spending problem. 
if I take every penny that I make and I go and I buy expensive things, you know, race cars and big houses and, you know, expensive jewelry and, and whatever, and I'm broke, that's not a problem with my employer not paying me enough. That's a problem with me not, not spending my money wisely. And then at the end of the day, I'm, empty, I'm left with empty pockets entirely as a result of my own spending habits, not because my employer hasn't paid me enough. I don't get the right to go to my employer and demand that they pay me more just because I want to spend more of that money on the things that I want as opposed to things that I need. None of these race teams are struggling to keep the lights on at the building. Um, and it's created this perception of, well, everyone's an underfunded team. Now, I think Chase Purdy said that Moose Motorsports is an underfunded team. He said it in one of the truck series interviews uh, prior to the truck race this, this past weekend. And I'm sitting there just scratching my head like, it sounds like everybody's underfunded at this point. You talk to Jeff Gordon, he'd probably say Hendrick Motorsports is underfunded. They're not. They're, they're not underfunded. They are overspending. And that's really where NASCAR and the teams need to come together on some sort of an agreement that caps the spending and keeps these teams in check. I mean, you look at some of the things that NASCAR has had to step in on before. I just look at the air guns on pit road. A few years ago, NASCAR had to go to a spec air gun for changing tires on pit road because the teams are dumping hundreds of thousands of dollars into R&D on these air guns just to shave a couple tenths mm-hmm. off of a pit stop. And NASCAR said, no, no more. You are using a spec air gun. The Gen 7 car was another kind of a backdoor attempt at a spending cap. That kind of backfired because it sounds like the Gen 7 car is actually costing these teams more to build and operate because of the single-source parts. But either way, that was another attempt by NASCAR to save the teams from themselves and their out-of-control spending. The issue isn't the revenue. Obviously, these teams would love to have more money, and sponsorship isn't what it used to be a decade or two ago. But the bigger issue is no matter how much money these teams have, whether it's $1 or a billion dollars, they're going to spend every single penny they have and come back with their hand out asking for more because they want more money to spend. You've got to get the spending under control or the revenue piece just doesn't matter. And I think that's the reality check that these teams need. And hopefully having an outside law firm with maybe a little bit of an unbiased perspective can look at the books and say, guys, I don't know how much more of this pie you want because you're not realistic in what you're going to do with it. It'd be one thing if these teams were legitimately struggling to survive and they weren't being able to make the races every weekend, but they want more money to spend it on minutia, like researching the next, whatever, whatever the next equivalent is of the new air gun on pit road, whatever they want to sink those hundreds of thousands of dollars into next, that's where they want that additional money for. And I think that's where the line needs to be drawn and say, no, Unless you guys get spending under control, we're not opening the books anymore for you. Yeah, I think this is a case of be careful what you ask for. <laughs> we want we want these teams to have a level playing field, and NASCAR is trying to accommodate that. Fans, that's what fans have been asking for. Uh, we want to we want to cheer for the underdog. We want to we want to we want to see everybody have a chance to win these races. Um, and you've got organizations like Hendrick Motorsports that has way more money than most other organizations, uh, and they're not the only ones. Uh, there's other teams too, uh, and they can spend more and and uh, get a competitive advantage by doing that. So there's a fundamental difference here between what NASCAR is trying to accomplish 
which is what the fans have been asking for, and actually what they were asking for at some point, too. Some of the underfunded teams, that's what they were asking for, to make it a more level playing field. Um, and and losing that competitive advantage. That's why they're going through these steps. But on the other hand, um, that's why they're asking for more money uh, because they're looking for that level. They're looking for that competitive advantage. But here's the thing. Um, if you bought a house, you would get an attorney to represent you to buy your house. If you were... We don't always get into situations where when we get a job, we have to hire an attorney. Um, But a lot of these professional players, that's exactly what they do. They hire an attorney to negotiate their their, uh, next contract. That's kind of what I see happening here, too. But there is a very big fundamental difference. And the RTA has made it clear from the very beginning that they feel that they need more money uh, from the media rights deal and and whatever way NASCAR, the the uh, track uh, earnings, whatever way NASCAR can give them more money. That's what they're looking for. Um, but you're right. Maybe having the attorney will help them see the picture more clearly. Um, but I think there's a big fundamental difference here, and I think that's why the attorneys have to get involved uh, because they're just getting, they're banging their heads against the wall trying to talk to each other because what NASCAR is trying to accomplish and what these guys want, uh, it's like having a teenager in the house. The teenager wants a lot, uh, but you can't always, you don't, you might not have the money to do it. Um, everything that the teenager wants. So what do you really need? Uh, and that's the conversation that really needs to take place. Uh, and and that's a tough conversation within an organization. If you're not making a profit, there's a reason you're not making a profit, and you need to have that tough conversation within your organization for what do we have to do differently if we want to make a profit within this organization. Uh, don't expect the handout. Look for what you can do internally uh, to make that profit happen. Uh, so, uh, yeah, those are tough, all, all tough conversations, but they got to do it. And I, I think I, I'm not against them getting an attorney. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that they got an attorney, but I do think it's an indication that uh, you've got two different ideas of what needs to happen. Uh, in these negotiations, and uh, the two are not finding a meeting of the minds. So we'll see how it plays out. Jay, what are your thoughts? Well, I told you I wasn't sure if 20 minutes was going to be enough for this one. First, I want to start with Tommy and Andy acknowledged they didn't have knowledge. Got to give credit where it's due. Mike had some knowledge that he shared with us there, and I appreciate that. Uh, I don't know about knowledge, but I definitely have an opinion, and it kind of ranks with what Sharon, you and Mike both said. You want to make more money as far as a profit, spend less money. I mean, that, that's step one. I, there, it's really tough, I think, when it comes to racing to be able to put a salary cap on it because there are so many different ways and outlets you, you can spend the money. Um, 
I mean, just off the top of my head, I think it's one of those of when the sponsorship was good in, say, the 90s into the 2000s, and sponsors were really coming into NASCAR. They went overboard with it and kind of got accustomed to that. And I just say that of you can get your team to the track by renting one bus and carrying your team versus a private jet. So, I mean, right there, you're talking about the difference in money. So there are ways you can spend less money. And I'm not saying they don't deserve more or should, you know, ask for a little bit more of the re- uh, TV revenue. I don't have the numbers to say one way or another when it comes to that, but I know you can talk about how you can spend less money as a race team for sure. With that, to me, this goes back to part of the problem with the charter system, and I was never 100% in favor of that. I understand where the teams are coming from. It gives them something tangible to sell when they uh, opt to get out of racing or have value to it. I understood that part of it. But NASCAR gave gave a portion of that was they guaranteed then you were able to start every race. There's teams out there that are doing it without that guarantee of even being able to make money per race because they're not guaranteed into the race. So that's where I get a little frustrated with that and still have a problem with the charter system itself. And like I said, the salary cap things on paper sounds great, but being able to enforce that track it, monitor it, how you're going to penalize it then if they don't, you're going to make them sit out a race, that is just such a big can of worms I don't even think you could possibly attempt to open. So my answer would be find ways to spend less money. Tommy? I don't really have much to add here on this one. I um, guess we'll just see how it goes. Andy? Yeah, same. Nothing to really add here. Mike? I think Jay hit on a really important point here. Back in the 90s and 2000s where money was abundant and if you lost one sponsor, there were five more waiting waiting on you to return a call. So that I think teams got really accustomed to that, and they never really evolved to the changing sponsorship market. It'd be like if you got a big pay cut at work. You know, if you lost 50% of your salary at work, if you don't adjust your personal spending habits, you're not going to be able to function without that without that additional pay that you've lost. And I think that's the same thing that's happening with teams. The teams got used to a certain income level and a certain sponsorship and revenue availability that simply isn't there anymore. And they want to pretend that money is still there from somewhere. And, and I think they've convinced themselves that the money is in NASCAR's hands now as opposed to being in uh, – the, the hands of sponsors waiting to be handed to them. But either way, I think the issue is that the teams need to readjust to the reality of the current financial market within racing and adjust their spending habits accordingly. So far, they haven't done that, but we'll see if these, uh, these current contract negotiations and the results from them give them the reality check that they need of the income isn't there anymore. You can't live the lifestyle that you got used to 10, 15, 20 years ago. You need to make these changes because – there is simply no other option. The changes have to be made. This is probably going to get uglier before it gets better. So hopefully it doesn't get too ugly and the sport's able to recover and thrive from there uh, at the end of this year and beyond. Yeah, I think, I think the, the key words that you said there, Mike, is a reality check. 
it's hard to feel sorry for some of these guys when they are uh, living the jet-setting kind of life and yet talking about how the organization's not making a profit. It's hard to feel bad for them. Uh, you got to think about what you need and not what you want and uh, adjust accordingly. And, uh, again, I don't have a lot to add there. It, you got to adjust the spending. Jay? Well, I know it's been around a while. This isn't a new problem. This saying has been around for a while. I'd credit it to, I know from the NASCAR level anyway, Felix Sabatis, and this was back in the late 70s, early 80s, when he was in his prime with the, the Sabatis Racing. You, know, you want to make a million dollars in racing, start with two million. So this is nothing new. It's just kept getting ramped up. Now we're talking about 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 million, as you mentioned. I mean, just think about it with, with Spire Motorsports. There were charters being sold for two to three million. They just paid 40 million for theirs. I mean, that's, that's their choice, not NASCAR's. So I, that, to me, the basic, basic the simple bottom line is you've got to spend less money. Okay, I guess we'll let that be the last word. Um, and then let's go ahead and um, uh, do our roundtable. Uh, Andy, let's start with you on that. I know you just got here, but... <laughs> no, that's okay. cv 14 fan on Twitter, and uh, at least I was able to come on for a little bit tonight, and um, we'll look to be back on Thursday. Okay. Uh, Mike? It's going to be Mike underscore Orzel on X. I'm going to try. I'm going to try this thing. I'm going to. I'm going to stop dead naming X and, and start calling it and stop calling it Twitter. So it is what it is. Also, Mike Double underscore O on Reddit. Great talking to y'all. Uh, last night in the race chat was a lot of fun and good to be on the radio with you again. I'm hoping to be available on Thursday. I am on call for work, so I'll let you know on Thursday morning what the plan is there. Okay, sounds good, Tommy. At since 95 fan on X, give me a follow. I'm posting my cars again. And uh, thanks for having me. It's always fun. Well, we enjoy it too, Tommy. Uh, good to have you here. Jay. You can follow me. Uh, Facebook is Michael Hoosman on X and Instagram. It is Mopar MJ8. I know I thank Sharon for having me back again this year, but I wanted to thank the whole Fan for Racing crew as uh, I'm not as available here to start the season on Thursdays, and that's been uh, arranged. I appreciate everybody helping out with that. And I have one request, though. Sharon, work on your best radio announcer voice, and during next week's or next show's intros, it is on, on the phone now, the Cone Assassinator, Mike Orzel. Okay, we do have a lot of fun with this group, and I like that. Uh, So thank you to all of you for being here tonight. Uh, the, The chat room was a lot of fun yesterday when we did our race day chat. I know I was in and out there, but uh, uh, everybody was having a good time, and I always like seeing that. And I also like it when we have a good time on the radio show as well. So I think we've got a good mix of people here. Um, uh, 
And uh, I am Fan for Racing site on Twitter, Fan for Racing blog and radio on Facebook, and uh, as well as our website at fanforracing.com. So uh, we're off to start. I was a little bit worried uh, for a couple of reasons. One, when Jay said he couldn't uh, be here to uh, co-host for the next 12 weeks, I thought, oh, my goodness, we're going to have to find somebody that can do that. Brian stepped up, and then he had uh, issues, and Mike stepped in. So uh, I feel like we've got a group here that uh, uh, whatever happens, we've got your back, and and uh, we're going to make things happen. Uh, and then today, uh, our site was down, and I didn't know if it was going to be back up in time for us to do the radio show. And, uh, again, somebody was looking out for us, and the site was back up, and we were able to do the show tonight. So I think that's a good omen going into the season. No matter what happens, we're going to find a way to make it all work. So. Thank you uh, to our Fan for Racing crew uh, for all of that. I do appreciate each and every one of you. You all bring something different, but something very unique to the program here, and uh, that's a good thing. So uh, I always have a lot of fun with this, and uh, I'm looking forward to the entire rest of the season. Uh, So a big shout-out and a big thank you to each and every one of you, Andy, Mike, uh, Tommy, Jay, and uh, Brian, who's not here tonight, and, of course, Sal Sagala, who had to work tonight, and Jay stood in for him. So uh, uh, it's really good that uh, we've got the team that we've got. So this is the first of uh, 36 more shows <laughs> throughout the rest of the year, and uh, we'll look forward to having a good time throughout all of it. Uh, with that, guys, I guess we're ready to call it a night. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. All right. Good night, everybody. We'll talk to you on Thursday. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.